Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Matthew Walker. Matt is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at UC Berkeley and the director of its sleep and neuroimaging lab, and he's also a former professor of psychiatry at Harvard University. He has published over 100 scientific studies and has appeared on 60 Minutes, Nova, BBC News, and many other outlets. His first book, Why We Sleep, has been an international bestseller, and he also hosts his own podcast, The Matt Walker Podcast. I've been wanting to speak to Matt for quite some time, because as you'll hear, I've been increasingly worried about the quality of my own sleep. I'm late to the party here, but now I'm convinced of the importance of sleeping well most nights. And Matt and I get into all the details here about the nature and importance of sleep. We discuss sleep and consciousness, the stages of sleep, sleep regularity, light and temperature, the evolutionary origins of sleep, the generally doomed attempt to reduce one's need for sleep, the connection between deficiencies in sleep and all-cause mortality, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, obesity, and heart disease, the role that sleep plays in learning and memory and mental health, heart rate variability, REM sleep behavior disorder, and various parasomnias. We discuss lucid dreaming, dreams as a kind of therapy, the connection between meditation and sleep, the various forms of insomnia, and there are practical tips for what to do about them strewn throughout our conversation. We discuss sleep hygiene, caffeine and alcohol, sleep efficiency, bedtime restriction, napping, and finally sleep tracking. And as we'll hear on that final topic of sleep tracking, Matt and I discover that each of us is associated with the company Aura that makes a sleep tracking ring. I am a minor investor in the company, and Matt is its scientific advisor. Neither of us knew about the connection before we started talking, and you'll hear I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with my own Aura ring. It is a remarkable device, but I may have what Matt calls orthosomnia, which is an overabundance of concern about my sleep data. In any case, make of that what you will, and I hope you find this conversation useful, as it runs nearly four hours. And now I bring you Matthew Walker. I am here with Matthew Walker. Matt, thanks for joining me. It's a delight and a privilege to be speaking with you, Sam. Thanks for having me. So you've written a book, Why We Sleep, that uh, seems to have gotten into the hands, if not the, the brains, of, of more or less everyone. Uh, and now you have a, your own podcast, the Matt Walker Podcast. And you have been on many, many podcasts uh, that I've noticed talking about the science of sleep and seemingly almost single-handedly making people newly aware of the, the importance of sleep in their lives, both from a, the side of you know, physical health and mental health, emotional regulation, uh, really just across the board when you're talking about human well-being, the difference between good and bad sleep seems paramount. And I must say, I have really neglected sleep as a variable for most of my life. In fact, I, I think I was early in life toyed with 
the uh, you know fairly crazy ideal of limiting sleep so as to boost productivity, um, and we'll get into all of that. But I, you know, before we um, dive into the specific chapters of our conversation here, perhaps you can introduce yourself, your your background intellectually and and academically, and and, and just tell us how you came to focus on sleep. I I wish I could take the compliment of bringing sleep back onto the public awareness map. I stand on the shoulders of many of my colleagues, and they are astronomically wonderful. So I try to do my part. In terms of my background, I am a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley in America. And I've really tried to dedicate myself to understanding the question of why we sleep for the past 20 years. I think like most people, I am an accidental sleep researcher. I often think, you know, when kids are young and the teacher says, tell me what you would like to be when you grow up, no one's shooting their hand up in the classroom and saying, I desperately want to be a sleep researcher. Yeah, and I can attest that uh, when I started my neuroscience PhD, someone from a sleep lab, I forget who, tried to recruit me to their lab, and I, I thought, why would I want to study sleep? I had no interest at that point. And um, you know, now uh, I feel some chagrin over that uh, dismissal because it, it is increasingly fascinating and, as I said, consequential. And in some ways, I, you know, I don't blame you. Maybe at the time, certainly even 20 years ago, one could argue it's almost academic suicide to mm -hmm. suggest that you want to become a sleep researcher. And not necessarily truthful, but some would argue that it was almost a charlatan science to begin with. And of course it is. It's the most bizarre, strange, illogical, irrational, from an evolutionary perspective, idiotic thing that an organism can do. And you're going to leverage an entire academic career on that platform. Good luck and good night would be the, I think, the tagline. Mm. But I was studying for my PhD people with different forms of dementia. And I was using brainwave patterns to try and differentially diagnose them very early on in the course of, of dementia. And I was failing miserably, couldn't get any good results. And one weekend, I had this little igloo of journals that I would retreat to, which tells you everything about my social life. And I started to learn that some of those dementias would eat away at sleep centers and other forms of the dementias would not because there are many different forms of dementia. So I realized I was measuring my patients at the wrong time, which was when they were awake and I should be measuring them when they were asleep. I started doing that. I got some fantastic results. And at that point, I started to ask the question, I wonder if these sleep disruptions and impairments are not a consequence of the dementia. They're not a symptom of the de dementia. Maybe they are a cause of the dementia. But I realized 20 years ago, no one could answer a very fundamental question, which was, why do we sleep? Um, and I think the crass answer at that time was that we sleep to cure sleepiness, which is the the fatuous equivalent yeah. of saying, I eat to cure hunger, it tells you nothing about the unique benefits. But then I started to explore this thing called sleep, and I fell absolutely in love with it. And to this day, 20 years on, I still think it is the most beguiling thing in science. 
It is a love affair that's not left me for all of those decades. And I remain an amorous partner to its wonderful gifts, both <laughs> nightly as a practice and also from a intellectual and academic and research perspective. Um, does that give some background? Yeah, yeah. Well, if I can follow your romantic analogy here, sleep is a um, a fairly coy mistress for uh, many of us. And this, you know, speaking personally, this has always been not even on the back burner for me as a problem to solve in my life. I just, I, I've accustomed myself to sleeping badly and just accepting on some level that I, I sleep badly. And so encountering your work is fairly arresting to someone in my condition because you know, the stakes, as we will elucidate here, are, are incredibly high given the connection between sleep and health. So I wanted to, at the outset, address the component of worry here, worry about sleep, because many people listening to us will also recognize in themselves that their, their sleep is far from ideal. And to add a layer of worry to that is obviously counterproductive when, when the goal is to uh, make it easier to sleep soundly and on some better schedule in general. So can you address this, this effect that our conversation is likely to have, especially when we're talking about possible links between poor sleep and dementia and you know, all the rest? It's just, it's very easy to begin to treat this as some kind of medical emergency in the offing. Yeah. What do you have to say as a, by way of uh, guidance or caution on that point? In some ways, it's a rock and a hard place that I found myself in. And this is something that I've learned since publishing the book. And I think it's something that I've corrected in my communication to the public. As I was writing the book at the time, at least within the public sphere, as you mentioned, sleep was the neglected stepsister in the health conversation of today. And it was that way. And I was so familiar as all of my colleagues were with the disease and the sickness and the suffering that was happening because of this sleep deficiency that was so pernicious throughout most first world nations that I wanted to try to, you know, no pun intended for either this podcast or the topic, but sort of wake people up to the fact of the importance of sleep. And I think that in my communications and maybe even in segments of the book, I was perhaps heavy-handed, and I had neglected to recognize the concern for the sleep-anxious and those who are having sleep difficulty. And I've since become so much more sensitive to that. And I can't deny the science. I can't not tell you about the links between insufficient sleep and you know, Alzheimer's disease, obesity, diabetes cardiovascular disease, depression, anxiety, even suicide, some forms of cancer. But I also don't want people to become overly anxious. But how do you do that? How do you find that sweet spot? And so for me, it's been a real lesson and a lesson also because I am no poster child for sleep. I have had my battles and I did not mention them in the book. And I think I should have. Um, I'm being personally open. I'm a very private person. 
I've had at least three bouts of insomnia during my lifetime, and they were vicious. And just because you know a little about sleep doesn't mean as though you are immune to its vagaries. It is a, a, a mistress that can be very fickle. So I think for this podcast, it's important to keep in mind two things. First, everyone has a bad night of sleep. And if you're there at night struggling to fall asleep, don't worry. Even with all of the facts and the science that we will discuss, it's not the worst thing in the world. The second thing is that if you are persistently and continuously chronically struggling to sleep, you don't have to, because there are efficacious treatments, many of them non-pharmacological, which is great, that can help course correct. In fact, even in older adults where you think there is no hope at all for a solid night of sleep, those therapies, many of them, seem to be beneficial to restoring some degree of good sleep. So you don't have to suffer in the nighttime silence that there is benefit there. I think that that's perhaps the best way to approach it with sensitivity, compassion, understanding, but truthfulness to the science. You know, I I wouldn't want to make people nervous about, you know, eating so precisely that it doesn't change their blood sugar, set them on a path towards, you know, pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. And where you become so obsessive and anxious that food and the joy and pleasures of eating start to fail. I also don't want to do that with sleep, but I equally don't want to tell you that it's fine just to eat a pint of of ice cream every night and that your blood sugar won't suffer. I'll tell you about that science too. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's great by way of introduction, and we will get into all of the aspects here, including all of the practical recommendations you have for improving sleep and bypassing any perverse cul-de-sac of worry about sleep that can get in the way of that project. So let's just begin. Let's jump into our first chapter here on what sleep is, even before answering the question that is the title of your book about why we sleep. What is sleep? From a functional perspective, I think the headline statement you could argue is that sleep physiologically at least, is perhaps the single most effective thing that we can do every day to reset the health of our brain and our body. And that's not to dismiss food or nutrition um, or exercise. But if you were to take you, Sam Harris, and I were to deprive you of food for 24 hours, deprive you of water for 24 hours, deprive you of physical activity for 24 hours, or deprive you of sleep for 24 hours, And I were to look across your brain and your body and see which one demonstrates the more demonstrable impairment. By a very large margin, it's it's sleep. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to sort of do that Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, I'm still missing one, I can't think of it, challenge. So you, you could ask from a functional perspective what sleep is. You can also ask what is sleep as a process that unfolds across the night in terms of its architecture. And then you can also ask and debate what is sleep as a conscious state versus a non-conscious state. And so I'm happy to maybe speak about how sleep unfolds, since that may be the logical entry point, or just go straight into how we can noodle and wrestle with the idea of it being a conscious versus non-conscious state, which can get us into tautological waters. But you tell me which of those two perhaps would be best to start with or fruitful for you. 
Yeah, well, the, the question of whether it's conscious is, um, uh, and I, I know I've spoken about this elsewhere, is very difficult to resolve just because it's difficult to discriminate an interruption in consciousness from a mere failure of memory. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, dreams are routinely conscious, but it's also possible to have dreams and, and not recall them at all. And then one could wonder whether those dreams, you know, whether those stages of REM sleep were actually associated with conscious dreaming. Um, and one could wonder that the state of deep sleep is also a state of conscious enjoyment of something quite uh, formless and profound, but there's just no memory of it. And so we, we read it as just a, a loss of experience for that period. And so I don't know how we would, I mean, I'm happy to hear anything you, you think on that topic, but I'm unaware of anything that would resolve that for us. I think it's a very elegant point, which is we rely for that question in part subjectively from the sleeper themselves, a report of whether or not they were experiencing anything going through their mind just before we woke them up and said, you know, what were you having as an experience? And that suffers from the, the failures of memory, which we know happen. Just because you don't remember your dreams doesn't mean that you weren't dreaming. I think one way that you can get closer, but we will still fail, is to split that question apart on the basis of perception, which is to say, depending on your, I mean, behaviorally, the way that we define sleep in other species where we can't, for example, stick electrodes on them, is as a condition in which the organism stops responding to the outside world, which is about perception. Does this mean that we are not conscious during sleep because we typically stop responding to the outside world in all stages of sleep? And that depends on your definition of consciousness, but we stop interacting with and for the most part perceiving the outside world, which some would argue is a loss of consciousness or at least a shift towards non-consciousness. But I'd counter-argue that we don't entirely stop perceiving the outside world. So for example, I can have electrodes on your head and I can play sounds while you're asleep that don't wake you up. And I can still see that the brain at some level is processing those sounds in a way that is not dissimilar to the way it does when we're awake, Mm -hmm. uh, consciously perceiving those sounds. We can do fMRI studies and we can play those sounds as you're sleeping in the MRI scanner. It's hard to believe that people can, but they do sleep in the scanner. And you can see that there are different ways of perception. There was a great study that looked at new mothers. And what they found was that when they played the cry of their infant versus another sound, even though they remained asleep, it was a very different network, a salience network activated in response to the child of that mother versus another sound of equal volume, etc. So there's definitely some degree of processing and discriminatory processing But I still don't think it's the same non-conscious state as anesthesia, meaning that there is still some degree of perception of the outside world during deep sleep. In other words, what we call extraception, the ability to focus or sense the outside world. Well, well, there's got to be just based on the fact that you can wake somebody up from deep (laughs) sleep, you know, so that's got to get in somehow. That's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you, you exactly predicted where that conversation was going, which is that no matter what stage you're in, 
sleep at least is a condition in which it is environmentally reversible. For example, if a sound is loud enough or if someone were to pinch your skin hard enough, which, which would be a desperately cruel thing, wouldn't it, to do when someone's asleep, you would wake up from sleep, which is to say that in sleep we are unresponsive, but that state of unresponsivity is reversible. Now, that's not true of anesthesia or death, for as best we yep. can tell. So I think it's very hard to argue then that we don't have a very substantive yet qualitatively different form of consciousness when we dream, especially during when we go into REM sleep dreaming. So I think we can get a little bit closer to a dissection of what do we think of as the state of conscious processing during sleep. But I still feel as though I don't see data that can really solidly give us one argument in in either favor, conscious, non-conscious state. Yeah, I would just add here that conversely, there are states of meditation or drug intoxication where someone is, is also totally unresponsive to the outside world, but all too conscious of something, right? I mean, in terms of their mm. subjective report once they come back from those experiences. So there's kind of a double dissociation here. So I think responsiveness to stimuli isn't the cut we need. We need. We obviously need the neural correlate of consciousness where we can just scan your brain and say, you know, by some methodology and say, okay, this is the footprint of consciousness in a human brain, and it winks out in this condition, let's say, general anesthesia, and it's attenuated to this degree in this stage of sleep. But unfortunately, we don't have that yet. And, and I think there are conceptual and, and operational limits to our getting it. Again, the, the role of self-report is always potentially confounding and, and seditious here because you can just, you know, we just need a, a sufficient cohort of people who are reporting things that occurred in the chapter that we're deeming to be unconscious. And, you know, either we're going to think they're delusional or they're lying or they're, um, in some other way wrong, or we're going to, or that's going to erode our confidence that really the lights are out during that epic. I think self-report, speaking about fickle mistresses, yeah, is, yeah. Yeah, is so prone to all of those errors. Okay, so with that caveat in mind, let's launch into, it would be good to just give us the structure of sleep here in human beings. You could say anything else you want about other animals, but um, what, is, what is sleep for people? Sleep, at least in human beings, and in fact in all mammalian species, as long as they are land-dwelling, there's a caveat there too, is broadly separated into two main types. On the one hand, we have non-rapid eye movement sleep, or non-REM sleep for short, and on the other hand, we have rapid eye movement sleep, or REM sleep. I often <laughs> want to make people clear on the fact that that's named not after the popular 1990s Michael mm. Stipe pop band, but because of these bizarre horizontal shuttling movements that occur during this stage of sleep, that's where it gets its definitional name from. And coming back to non-REM sleep, which I always feel sorry for, by the way, isn't it, isn't it sad to be defined by something that you're not? <laughs> you right. are not yeah. REM sleep. Well, I and guess, so I guess in this you. case, you're deep and light. That's correct. Yeah. So non-REM sleep is then further subdivided into 
four separate stages, increasing in their depth of sleep. So stages one and two are what we would consider, or your sleep tracker will probably try to tell you are the light stages of non-REM sleep, whereas stages three and four, that's the really deep non-REM sleep. And REM sleep then is the stage in which we principally dream. Depending on your definition, dreaming isn't exclusive to REM sleep, Mm. but for what most people would say in the lay public, this is dreaming, what they're really referring to are the bizarre, narrative, hallucinogenic, emotional, memory-laden experiences that come from this thing called REM sleep. So those two types of sleep, non-REM and REM, will play out effectively in a battle for brain domination throughout the night. And that cerebral war between non-REM and REM, in humans at least, and it's different for different species, will last about 90 minutes. And that creates, a, for the average adult, a prototypical 90-minute cycle where you go into non-REM sleep, and then you go into REM sleep. But what changes, however, is the ratio of non-REM to REM within those 90-minute cycles as you move across the night. So in other words, in the first half of the night, the majority of those 90-minute cycles are going to be comprised of lots of non-REM sleep, particularly deep non-REM sleep. But as you push through to the second half of the night, that sort of seesaw balance shifts over and those 90-minute cycles are comprised of much more rapid eye movement sleep and very little deep sleep. And that has some consequences that we can also talk about. But I would probably mention also every one of those stages of sleep or almost all of those stages of sleep we have now learned are important. There is no one more important stage of sleep than the other. Now you can argue, well, what are you talking about importance? Are you talking about mortality risk and death? And we can use that as a filter to debate that as well. But overall, different stages of sleep provide different functions for the brain and the body at different times of night. Mm. So we need all of those stages. And is it true that uh, we generally wake up, however briefly and indiscernibly, after each of these 90-minute phases, you, you get through your your REM period, and then there's a brief awakening. That's that's absolutely. I'm. Um, you you definitely need to be a, a sleep researcher. Take mm-hmm. a sabbatical and build me a time machine, and I'll go back and <laughs> have the conversation differently. So we we do know that usually at the end end of every one of those ninety minute sleep cycles, at the end of each of those REM phases, there is a brief termination of sleep where we wake up. And in part, we think that that's perhaps because of the the need to maneuver the body and change the body's position. Mm -hmm. And so we have these brief awakenings. They're usually so brief that most of us don't recall them. They're not imprinted in memory. But everyone will typically have a brief awakening and then a movement episode after where they shift position. Right. And and we'll talk about sleep tracking uh, and the tools that are available to do that personally, beyond going into a sleep lab and getting totally hooked up. But um, viewing these stages in their totality, you've said that each is indispensable, but it it does seem, at least in the the way one communicates the the imperative to get 
all of these stages. Most of us are not deficient in the stages of light sleep, and it's really the stages of REM and deep sleep that are marketed as uh, truly restorative, right? And that those are the, the areas of real deficiency. I mean, so for instance, if someone was sleeping six hours, but they got very long epochs of deep sleep and REM sleep, would that strike you as a much healthier profile than someone sleeping six hours, but is mostly devoted to the stages one and two of light sleep? Yes. I think that that's fair to say. We do need stage two as well. We've discovered that stage two non-REM sleep is associated with certain forms of memory and memory processing. Mm -hmm. And there is a particular electrical feature of stage two non-REM sleep, which continues on into deep non-REM sleep stages three and four, called sleep spindles, which are these mm -hmm. beautiful little champagne cork synchronous bursts of electrical activity that happen during stage two non-REM sleep and then stages three and four. They last for about a second and a second and a half. And they seem to be critical for a number of different processes of both the brain, and they seem to transact or be at least associated with several benefits for the body. But overall, I would say that it's very difficult to have a night where you're not transitioning, because when you go down into deep non-REM sleep, you have to progress through stage two. And when you're coming out of deep non-REM sleep, you have to progress through stage two non-REM sleep, again, the, the lighter form of non-REM sleep, before you get up into REM sleep. And so it would probably be rather difficult. You can manipulate conditions in which this can happen, which I won't bore you with, but where you could have the scenario that you described. But for the most part, you're still going to get that stage two non-REM sleep. Yet what you said is correct. Well, this is where maybe I'll... I'll um... I'll seed you with uh, practical questions throughout, but um, the first that comes to mind here is what are the implications of waking with an alarm clock versus waking uh, with a uh, the change in, in lighting conditions born of you know, sunlight coming through the window? And I guess there's the the implication of uh, of using a sleep mask or a uh, or blackout curtains where you're not getting those environmental light cues. I can imagine, you know, if you're unlucky, your alarm clock rings when you're in, in stage four sleep, say, and you're brought out of that in a less than ideal way. What are, what, what are, those, what are those effects and, and what do you actually recommend if a person's schedule allows for it? What, what do you recommend as a, as a mode of, of waking up in the morning? Unless you are waking up within the first couple of hours of sleep, it's unlikely that your alarm would wake you up in the deep stages of non-REM sleep. That's right. not true, however, if you take an afternoon nap and that nap lasts a little bit too long. Yeah. And by too long, what I mean is you're going past that sort of 20 to 25 minutes and you're starting to go down into the deep sleep and then your alarm wakes you up. Then you almost have this kind of sleep hangover for the next hour yeah. or so those naps are terrible gone, yeah like you know, oh it's it, with a change of time zone when you when you have terrible jet lag and you, and you decide okay there's no way i'm going to make it to the evening so i gotta i'm going to give myself an hour to sleep here and that that <laughs> the, waking up from that hour is just about the worst wake up one ever gets it's pretty grim isn't yeah. it and it's what we call sleep inertia 
where you get a state carryover where your brain never typically wakes up from, is jolted out of that deep sleep naturalistically from an evolutionary perspective across millions of years. That's not been the case. And so we're not well prepared for recovering from that assault. And therefore we suffer this terrible sleep inertia. So it's not so likely to happen, but when it does happen, it's grim. It can also happen at night when, for example, you get a phone call mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it wakes you up at you know, 2.30 or 1.30 in the morning. And once again, you're jolted out from that deep sleep. And yes, you can answer the phone and you can be somewhat responsive, but it is just grim. You're in this total treacle haze of cognitive dysfunction and it's all you can do to allow words to tumble in some meaningful way one foot in front of the other out of your mouth so that is perhaps a less likely circumstance what would i suggest it's difficult because one of the critical things that people need to do to get their sleep back on track is the simple act of regularity mm-hmm. which is going to bed and waking up at the same time no matter whether it's the weekday or the weekend. And for that, we often require an alarm clock. And I also advocate for people not just to have an alarm clock in the morning, but why don't we have a to-bed alarm as well as a to-wake alarm? Um, And it's one way to help keep us on schedule and track. I would say, however, that if you study hunter-gatherer tribes, whose way of life hasn't really changed for you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years, they don't seem to wake up in an artificial manner. And if you ask them, you know, do you find ways to force yourself to wake up? They find it a perplexing question. Why would you, why would you terminate something that's not yet complete? It's a little bit like saying, why would you go out to your favorite restaurant, order your favorite dish, have two bites of that dish, and then get up and walk out? you would stay until you're full when you are complete with that meal. And why would we wake up when we are not yet full of the sleep that we need? And Mother Nature will take care of that. When it's time to wake up and we've had the sleep that we need, we do. So one way some people will ask me, how do I know if I'm getting enough sleep? Uh, It's not the, the ideal way, but one suggestion is to say, if your alarm clock didn't go off in the morning, would you sleep past that alarm? And if the answer is yes, then you're still carrying some degree of a sleep need, which means that by waking up artificially, you're inducing a sleep debt as a consequence. What about the role of light cues in bringing someone out of sleep? It's, we used to think that light perhaps was the trigger of, or one of the facilitating functions for rising people out from sleep in the morning. And again, by looking at those hunter-gatherer tribes, what we found is that that's not really the case. They often typically will wake up a little bit before the dawn. What seems to be the trigger for the arrival of wakefulness and the termination of sleep is more so temperature, both the internal temperature Mm -hmm. and the ambient temperature rising, because often they will sleep with the environment, with the ambient temperature, unlike many of us in modernity where we have a controlled temperature. So that's not to suggest that light can't be a facilitator to help you wake up in the morning. And in fact, I will, I have one of these little smart lights next to my 
bedside and I program it to try and say, you know, two minutes before the time that you're supposed to wake up, start to bring light into the room. I would say though that I do have an alarm myself. Um, my alarm is, and we can get into sort of chronotypes and what your preference is, but my alarm is set for around 7.04 in the morning or at 7.04 in the morning. Hmm. Not because there's anything special or unique. Please don't go rushing out and changing your wake up time to that. We're not going to have a chapter on numerology here and the significance of even The only reason I do that is is why not just be idiosyncratic? Why would you set it at, you know, 7.05 or 7 or 7.10? Just why not 704? Right. <laughs> uh, it tells you probably everything about me and, and why I'm desperately unpopular. But so, but I usually wake up naturally. I would say about 80% of the time I wake up naturally before my alarm clock. So I think there are one of the worries that people have when I tell them to do the experiment, if you have the luxury and the schedule flexibility to do it, stop your alarm and just sleep in the way that you are, your body wants to sleep. The greatest worry is that, my goodness, I normally wake up at seven and I'll probably wake up at nine o'clock in the morning is the first concern. Now that may be true to begin with for the first few days because you're probably trying to sleep back a debt that you've amassed chronically over weeks, if not months or years. And the second problem is that when people sleep long, they wake up and once again, they have that strange sleep hangover effect where if they get nine hours of sleep, they feel worse than when they get Mm -hmm. seven hours of sleep. That is typically because you are in the phase of paying back the debt. And if you let that experiment play out for another week, you wash away that sort of pressure to sleep. Now, we can speak about sleep debt and whether you can ever truly pay back the bank or not. But that goes away with time. It's sort of like detoxing from a drug. At first, it's brutal and you have all of these side effects and you have a withdrawal syndrome. And in some ways, that's the withdrawal syndrome where you start sleeping longer. That settles down. It's like a Richter shot and then it finds a sweet spot. And gradually, you will actually acquiesce to your typical sleep need and your sleep profile. Most people don't have the luxury to do that. So light can be helpful. Temperature is one. I also have one of those smart home thermostats. And temperature is critical for sleep. We need to ironically warm up to cool down to fall asleep. And then we need to stay cool to stay asleep. And finally, we need to warm up to wake up. And so you can create a bespoke, tailored temperature profile for your night of sleep that can help to some degree. Now, of course, you're under the sheets and the ambient has some role to play, but it's also altered by what's going on locally underneath the sheets too. So you can't control it exquisitely. And that's where smart mattresses are coming in to try and take that out of the equation. So those are some of the ways that you can play around with sleep. I do like the idea if you are particularly, if you are a night owl and you struggle to wake up at the time that society forces you to, which is not in synchrony with your morningness or eveningness preference, you can use light in the morning, but then you can reverse that trick in the evening where you try to ensconce yourself with as much dim light and darkness to help you try to get to bed a little bit earlier. So it's not as though light should be dismissed and 
you know, blocking devices, blackout curtains, eye masks, earplugs. Sound is another pollution that will disrupt your sleep. I will typically use all of those. I have blackout curtains. I have an eye mask, um, and then I have earplugs. I'm. I think I. I'm starting to sound like mm. the Woody Allen neurotic of the sleep yes. world, but that's just me. Yeah, so all we need is one picture of this setup and to completely discredit you as a expert on sleep. Oh, I've uh, been so discredited yeah. by lots of different things, but that would, I think, seal the deal. Okay, so uh, let's transition to the question of why we sleep. I think there's probably no real boundary between what sleep is and, and why we do it conceptually here, at least in places, because... Um, Part of the story here is the the evolutionary question of just why sleep is a thing and how it came to be that uh, animals like ourselves dedicate so much of their lives to this state that seems fairly pointless and even dangerous. I mean, this is the, you can imagine, in civilization, the, the danger is less salient, but just imagine how precarious uh, it would be to you know go out in the woods where there are bears and perhaps several other species that could consider you a meal and to uh, just <laughs> to take uh, eight hours of darkness to be unconscious for. I guess there's a potential evolutionary answer there in that the one thing you're not doing uh, when you're sleeping is stumbling around in the dark where you're not very good at seeing and several other things can see you better than you can see them. But I'm not sure that's an adequate uh, rationale. So let's begin talking about the origins of sleep as um, we know them or can um, hypothesize about them. What, what, what do you think about uh, why sleep even exists? So far in every species that we've studied to date, sleep or something that looks very much like it seems to exist. And what that has suggested is, is that sleep evolved with life itself on this planet and has fought its way through heroically every step along the evolutionary pathway. Let's and, linger on that point because that's, that's very interesting because you can imagine imagine the the adaptive benefits that would generally accrue to any species that could just get over its need for sleep. I mean, there, there mm -hmm. would have been, you would think, a selective pressure in the direction of completely erasing sleep. So it's, it suggests that it's rather hard to do. I think it's a beautiful way of thinking about it, because from an evolutionary perspective, just as you noted, it is the most idiotic of all things. Firstly, when you're asleep, you're not eating, you're not foraging for food, you're not finding a mate, you're not reproducing, you're not caring for your young. And worst of all, as you noted, you're vulnerable to predation. So on any one of those grounds, but especially all of them as a, as a collective, sleep should have been strongly selected against during the course of evolution. And it's once been said that if sleep doesn't serve an absolutely vital function, then it's the biggest mistake the evolutionary process ever mm. made. And what we've now since learned is that Mother Nature didn't make a spectacular blunder in creating this thing called sleep. But even very old evolutionary, you know, species like earthworms, for example, seem to have periods of, uh, it's called lethargicus or essentially a sleep-like state. You know, this takes sleep back millions of years. Even some bacteria that seem to live at least several days they will have an active phase and a passive phase, perhaps the precursor 
to sleep. So you're right, you could well imagine why, if some species had understood a way to circumnavigate its way around the essential need for sleep, it would have dominated for lots of different reasons, at least within its species category. The fact that we haven't seen that yet argues that sleep must be fundamental at the most basic of biological levels. And it's one of the reasons why when people will say to me, well, look, can't you, you know, if you're a, a doctor training, I think we learned to overcome our need for sleep. We, we learned to, to tolerate and, and deal with insufficient sleep. And you can do that. If you could, trust me, I think, Mother, you know, there's some degree of, of hubris there, which is Mother Nature, if she could have even halved the amount of time that you are vulnerable to all of those uh, vicissitudes of, of, of sleep, she certainly would have. And the fact that it's been preserved tells you that doesn't seem to be possible. And within the lifespan, we think that we can come along and within a 10-year training of a career, mm. we could overcome it. It's, it's unlikely to be the case. Actually, they, I think this might, might punctuate this part of the conversation with the um, cases of uh, various people who, at least by their own testimony, have gone a fair way toward overcoming their personal need for sleep. I, mean, I think it was Winston Churchill who, during the war years, was sleeping the last 10 minutes of every hour or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that's apocryphal, but what do we know about anyone's successfully titrating their, their sleep down to something like a minimum. I'm sure there's, there are genotypes here that we may know something about where people just require less sleep than, than is normal. But uh, I, actually, I once had a doctor who claimed to sleep no more than three and a half hours a night. And, uh, you know, whether he was, again, this is before the, the um, the age of sleep tracking, so he could have been delusional. But what do we know about people who sleep much less than you would recommend? Firstly, from an epidemiological or population-based perspective, which is simply associational, using that sweet spot that we recommend, which is somewhere between seven to nine hours a night for the average adult, once you start to get less than that, the shorter your sleep, the shorter your life. That short sleep predicts all-cause mortality. Are there people in history who have claimed to be short sleepers? There are. And Churchill was one. Edison was another. Although Edison was a habitual napper during the day and he used naps and sleep as a creative tool. Then you have Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. You have Ronald Reagan. Just named vocal... two people who ended their, their lives uh, with Alzheimer's. So that's not a, well, not a great commercial exactly for their where strategies. I was going. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, they seemed if on the face of it to make it through until the you know 50s or even 60s my goodness there, there is evidential proof that you can sleep what they claimed to be sleeping which is four hours a night and get away with it and ultimately what we learned is that one way or another sleep deficiency seems to get its hooks into you that the elastic band of sleep deprivation can stretch only so far before it snaps and tragically, for both of those individuals, Thatcher and Reagan, they succumbed to the disease of, of, of Alzheimer's. And we Actually, now know that there I, are... I now realize we have several files open, but um, each of these is, seems important. So on that point, how do we um, disentangle association and causation here? Because it, couldn't it also mm. be true that 
one of the early symptoms of Alzheimer's or you know being at uh, special risk for it is to have one's uh, apparent ability to sleep diminish over the course of one's life, even maybe starting as early as one's 30s or, or 40s. Yeah, so we can go, Alzheimer's disease is actually a, a great example. It's probably been, I think, that one of the most exciting areas of sleep research in terms of discoveries in the past 10 or even five years. We started with just those epidemiological associations, which are simply that, they're correlation, they're not causation. And what that told us is that people who were reporting sleeping less than six hours a night had a significantly greater amount of what we call beta amyloid, which is a sticky toxic protein that's associated with Alzheimer's disease, nested in their brain in later life relative to those who are sleeping seven hours or more. Mm. We also knew that individuals who had sleep disorders, such as insomnia or untreated sleep apnea, they had a similarly increased rate of beta amyloid accumulation. And they also had a, a far higher rates of, or faster rates, I should say, of what we call cognitive decline or memory decline later in life. Then correlation went in search of causation. And what we discovered is that if you deprive healthy animals or you deprive healthy, even young human beings of sleep for a single night, or even if you just selectively deprive them of deep non-REM sleep across a single night, the next day there is a significant increase in the amount of beta amyloid mm. that is in the system, either indexed using cerebrospinal fluid markers, using special brain scanning what we call PET scans, and also using circulating blood markers. Uh, and I should note, by the way, that similar findings are now emerging for the other protein culprit linked to Alzheimer's disease, which is called tau protein. So that gave us a stronger sense that this wasn't simply correlational. There seemed to be a causal link that when you hold, even in young individuals, the state of the pathology constant and you manipulate sleep, in result, in return the next day, you get a change in that pathology. So that then led us to ask the question, if sleep loss does causally trigger a next day increase in Alzheimer's disease pathology within the brain, then what is it about sleep when you do get it that averts that accumulation of pathology? And the answer came from what I think is a seminal discovery in mice and it was made by a scientist called Macon Nedegaard at the University of Rochester. And what she discovered in these mice was the brain's equivalent of the body's lymphatic system, but it's called the glymphatic system, named mm. after the cells that make it up, called the glial cells. And sort of it, what that glymphatic system was doing, very much like the lymphatic system of the body, was offering a form of brain cleansing that we didn't think that the brain had a cleansing system, but it does. It's called the glymphatic system. If that wasn't remarkable enough, she made two further discoveries. The first was that that glymphatic system was not always switched on in high flow volume across the 24-hour period consistently. It was especially active during the deep stages of non-REM sleep stages three and four of non-REM sleep. That's when it really kicked into high gear. The second thing that she discovered was that among the metabolic detritus that the glymphatic system 
removes from your brain each night are those two toxic proteins linked to Alzheimer's disease, which is beta amyloid and tau. So in other words, the glymphatic system provided a sleep-dependent mechanism that may aid in the elimination of Alzheimer's disease pathology. It may de-escalate your risk. And so that's the reason why, if we come back to the epidemiological studies now, we start to understand those better, that without sufficient sleep each night, that pathology can escalate, almost like compounding interest on a loan, and it may help sort of give mechanistic causal explanation to those strong associations. And from a physiological perspective, it's perhaps sort of hyperbole maybe, but you could consider wakefulness as low-level brain damage and sleep as (laughs) a sanitary salvation, that perhaps sleep is the price that we pay for wakefulness. Now, I think this is, again, this, this comes right back to, this, to the start. I don't want to make people anxious, you know, when they're sitting in bed at night thinking, oh my goodness, I'm escalating my Alzheimer's pathology risk. And it's detectable on the basis of a single bad night of sleep, too. That's, yeah. that's correct. Not and to that's mention years of bad sleep. Correct. And that maybe helps, you know, it, it offers a scientific lens through which you can appreciate perhaps the, the fate of, of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Now, we, we'll never know, but that's one way to think about it. What I think is present here is a much more positive story that there's a silver lining. Because unlike many of the other factors that we know that contribute to aging and Alzheimer's disease, for example, changes in the physical structure of the brain or the blood flow dynamics of the brain, they're fiendishly difficult to treat right now. But sleep is a modifiable treatment target, mm. and we may be able to do something about it early as well. And with newly emerging technology, where we can potentially try to enhance the deep sleep quality of people, and we've been trying to do some of this work, perhaps in midlife, which is when we see the, the beginning of the decline of your deep sleep. Uh, it doesn't happen when you are in your 60s or your 70s. We can see the decline in your deep sleep happening even once you're in your mid-30s. And using these types of sleep-augmentating tools and technologies, or even things such as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is a psychological-based treatment, could we try to bend the arrow of Alzheimer's disease risk down on itself? And in doing so, could we move from a model that we have right now, which is late-stage treatment, to a model of midlife prevention? Um, that is one of my hopes, at least. I, I'm sure I will fail in my pursuit to try and course correct that, but I think it's a worthy thing to, to attempt. No, well, I'm going to offer myself up as a case study here. We can uh, dive into my case, and I will take your recommendations, and I will report back. But before we do, let's linger on the question of why we sleep from an evolutionary point of view. I think I heard you speculate uh, elsewhere, and you did just open the door to this line of thinking that um, maybe sleep is what's primary and wakefulness is a further biological innovation, right? And, that, and mm-hmm. so the question, maybe the, the, the relevant question is not why do we sleep, but why do we wake up in the first place? And mm-hmm. I wonder what your thoughts are on that topic and just what else we know about sleep in other species. So 
Yeah, you mentioned flatworms, but is it true throughout all the other species we have studied, you know, insects and amphibians, reptiles? I mean, is sleep a state, whether we have any, any kind of clear physiological markers for it? Is it? Do we believe that all of these animals sleep? So let me come back to the first part of yeah. the question. I sort of put this forward in a, in a book that I wrote a truly idiotic idea, but why do we assume that sleep evolved? <laughs> why don't we assume that sleep was the default state, modus operandi, and it was from sleep that wakefulness emerged? And as you said, what we should really be asking is why did we bother ever to wake up? Now, of course, there are a whole panoply of different benefits of being awake, but in some ways, perhaps you know, sleep, as I said, it is the price that we pay for wakefulness, that we have to return to the sleep state to reverse the consequences and the luxury that we have of this thing called wakefulness. How will I, or how could you test some of those things? I think it's a very difficult problem to solve as a question with short of a time capsule where I can race back and to the start of, of, of life and see. I, I don't think I will know. We can use the evolutionary lens of different species as we described. We can go back to ancient species, even things so fundamental as bacteria. But what, in response to your second part of the question, yes, in every species that at least we've carefully studied to date, from insects, for example, fruit flies and other, other insects that we've studied, through to reptiles, amphibians, fish, as well as birds and mammals, sleep is present, or at least something if you can't get physiological recordings from them. And nowadays we can get those in even insects. It, it seems to be present and readily observable. That doesn't mean, however, that all stages of sleep are present. And that I think is fascinating because it tells us something about who emerged first in the sleep equation of non-REM and REM. Because in birds and mammals, you see the presence of both non-REM sleep as well as REM sleep, as well as rapid eye movement sleep. Now, if some have argued, I think rightly, that birds and mammals evolved separately from the lineage of reptiles, amphibians, and, and fish, which means perhaps in that case that perhaps REM sleep has emerged twice independently in the course of evolution, once for mm. birds, once for mammals. Perhaps that tells us something fundamental about REM sleep. Perhaps it tells us something about the, the, the persistent need and the benefit of REM sleep. But now, some people have found that in some reptiles, depending on where you stick the electrodes into the brain, which, ouch, I know sounds painful for some of us who are sensitive to that, you can see a proto version of REM sleep that was present in some of those reptiles. But for the most part, what we think of as the full fat version of REM sleep is only present in, in birds and, and mammals. So to your point, yes, sleep seems to be present and ever-present in just about every species that we've studied, old and new, evolutionarily. But if there is a new kid on the block when it comes to different types of sleep, 
It is REM sleep that is the newer form of sleep, which you could then argue, well, presumably that tells you that deep non-REM sleep, if it evolved first, is the most important stage of sleep. And if you were to say to me, you know, Matt, if I have to optimize my sleep and I can only get a certain amount, shouldn't I just focus on getting, you know, the most amount of my deep sleep because of that evolutionary argument? That's actually not true. If you take, for example, the the perspective of death, and people have done these studies, and in fact, I don't think they will repeat them again for ethical reasons, they would take rats and they would deprive them of sleep day after day after day. And the first finding was that sleep is essential for this thing called life because the rats died from total sleep deprivation within somewhere between about 16 to 20 days. Mm-hmm. In other words, rats will die almost as quickly from food deprivation as they will from sleep deprivation. So it's that essential. But what they then found was that if they repeated the experiment, but now they just selectively deprive the rat of only non-REM sleep and allowed it to get non-REM sleep, or only allowed the rat to get REM sleep and deprive it of non-REM sleep, so you selectively remove one or the other, what they found was that the rats who were deprived of REM sleep, which is the newer evolutionary form of sleep, they died within about 40 days, whereas the rats who were deprived of deep non-REM sleep, what we think of as the older evolutionary form of sleep, they died within about 60 days. In other words, you will die sooner as a rat from REM sleep deprivation than you will from non-REM sleep deprivation. So it's, it's an interesting you know, coming back to this question of, is it present in all species? Yes. Are all stages present in all species? No, they don't seem to be. Which one is therefore evolutionary, uh, sort of older versus newer? And then which one is more important, at least through the debatable lens of mortality? You can get some interesting data. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Well, we're going to talk about REM sleep and and dreaming in a minute here, but uh... Speaking generally about the, again, the, the speaking to the question of why we sleep and its mm. functional consequences, what do we know about what sleep is doing for us beyond this uh, fairly important housekeeping role of uh, clearing out beta amyloid and tau protein and, it seems, staving off at least some form of uh, catastrophe? What else is sleep doing for us? I think as far as the science goes right now, the headline here is that there is no major system within the body or operation of the mind that doesn't seem to be wonderfully enhanced by sleep when we get it, or medically and psychologically impaired when we don't get enough. So we know that sleep, for example, is essential for regulating your metabolic system, which more specifically your blood sugar level and your blood glucose regulation. So for example, if I take a perfectly healthy individual who has no signs of diabetes, and then I put them on a regimen of, let's say, four hours of sleep for a week, the the blood sugar regulation is so impaired that at the end of that week, the doctor would classify them as being pre-diabetic. So you can demonstrate a causal link with the metabolic system. Hmm. We, We also know that sleep is plays a, a fundamental role in your body weight and the link between a lack of sleep and obesity. 
sleep will actually regulate two critical appetite hormones called leptin and ghrelin. Leptin gives you a signal of saying, I feel full and I don't want to eat anymore. Ghrelin does the opposite. It says, <laughs> you're not satisfied with your meal. You want to eat more, even though you may have had plentiful calories. And when you are underslept, that signal of satiety of leptin that says, don't eat, you're satisfied with your meal, don't eat more, that is impaired. Whereas the hunger hormone, ghrelin, which revs your appetite up, that is actually increased by a lack of sleep. And as a consequence, causal studies have demonstrated that people will, as a result, start to overeat. They will eat in a caloric excess when they are underslept, which I think perhaps contributes to the, the links between, epidemiologically at least, a lack of sleep and a high risk of obesity. We also know that there is a very powerful link between sleep and cardiovascular disease uh, and the cardiovascular system. For example, we can deprive people of sleep for just a single night and we can see an immediate hypertensive response that the systolic and diastolic blood pressure will increase. We also know that there are links between insufficient sleep and the clogging up of your arteries, something that we call atherosclerosis. And we recently published a paper that it's not just about the quantity of your sleep, but it's also about the quality of that sleep. Is it nice and consistent or is it fragmented and piecemeal? that dictates that interaction between the deposition of the, those plaques within the artery that fur them up. A question about the causation there is, is that discernible in terms of a person's lipid profiles, or are you talking about the, the end-stage outcome of actual arteries being clogged? Both. In fact, you can mm. see it in lipid profiles. And then there was a wonderful prospective study, a quite frightening one, in fact, that came out of Harvard where they they recruited a, a large group of individuals who, at the start of the study, had no signs of cardiovascular disease. And what they were focusing on was something called the coronary artery, which is the main life-giving doorway to the blood flow to your heart. And so when someone tells you, gosh, you know, they passed away from a massive coronary, what happened is there was a, a blockade of that major corridor of life for the heart. So they looked at these individuals who had no signs of that blockade to begin with, and then they tracked them across, I think it was about a five-year period. And what they found was that those individuals who were sleeping five hours or less at night went on to have somewhere between a two to 300% increased risk of calcification of the coronary artery relative to those who were sleeping between seven to eight hours a night. And that's a prospective longitudinal study, which gets us closer to causation. We can also then, I think, go upstairs. And the, the, I think the links perhaps between a lack of sleep and immunity, which I, we'll probably get to maybe if we get the chance to speak about what sleep has, or how sleep has changed during the COVID era. But there's a very intimate link between the health of your sleep and the health of your immune system. There was one great study done by a colleague, Michael Irwin at UCLA, and he limited individuals to just four hours of sleep for one single night. And then he looked at a change in something called natural killer cells, which are anti-cancer fighting immune cells, a little bit like these sort of secret service agents of your immune system. They will weed out potential sort of cancerous cells and they will attack them and destroy them. 
And what he found was that after just one night of four hours of sleep, there was a 70% drop in these critical anti-cancer fighting immune cells. We've also seen causal evidence where if you limit people to different amounts of sleep, different sort of sleep buckets, you know, five hours, six hours, seven hours, there are significant associations between your risk of becoming infected by the rhinovirus, by the flu virus. Mm. And we knew that even from epidemiological studies that people who were reporting sleeping less than seven hours of sleep a night had almost a threefold increased likelihood of becoming infected by the common cold. There was also a great study done looking at immunity where they examined, they limited individuals to, I think it was four or five hours of sleep for in the week or the five days before giving them the standard flu shot. This is not the COVID shot, but this is the flu shot. And what they found is that relative to those people who were getting a full night of sleep, those who were underslept ended up producing less than 50% of the normal immune antibody response mm -hmm. to that flu vaccine, therefore rendering it either far less effective or completely ineffective. So, and we can walk through other systems too. You know, I can speak about the reproductive system and that men who are limited to five hours or four hours of sleep a night for a week have a level of testosterone, which is that of someone 10 years their senior. Um, we see similar impairments in female reproductive health caused by insufficient sleep in luteinizing hormone, in estrogen, and also in something called follicle-stimulating hormone, which is critical for reproduction. So no, no matter what system in the body, be it metabolic, be it cardiovascular, immune, reproductive, even thermoregulatory, we sometimes forget how critical our ability is to thermoregulate and how that keeps us alive. Even that is eroded by a lack of sleep. So downstairs in the body, those are some of the links. And of course, we can go upstairs into the brain and speak about, you know, functions of learning and memory. We can speak about functions of mental, emotional, and mood health, um, the links with major depression, bipolar depression, anxiety. Yeah, but maybe let, let's, uh, maybe that's the, the right sequence here. Let's uh, jump into a chapter on what we know about the connection between sleep and learning and memory. It's been a long-standing area. In fact, it was only back in 1953 when we discovered that human beings actually have two different types of sleep. Before that, we didn't know about non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. Now, just to give some sense, it was the same year that Watson and Crick made the discovery of the helical structure of mm -hmm. DNA, which led to the revolution of genomics. And that revolution happened in sleep in the same year. And maybe we have, or maybe we haven't progressed as quickly. But from a very early stage, people were thinking about sleep as, as having a role in learning and memory. In fact, there is a wonderful quote from the Roman rhetorician Quintilian who I think once said that, that the, and I'll, I'll alter this, is, uh, I, I don't know the full quote uh, off by heart, but he said something along the lines of, there is something striking about the interval of sleep, unlike the interval of waking, such that the next day, things that were difficult to recall at the time are accessed far easier as a consequence. Hmm. And what he was essentially saying is that there seems to be something about our ability to 
take information that we've learned and enhance or cement it or solidify it and so that we don't forget it and we can recall it the next day. And so we've now discovered that sleep is important for learning memory in at least three ways, although I would argue in four ways. And the fourth is perhaps paradoxical and something that is not often spoken about. At least I certainly haven't spoken about it too much. But the first way is that you seem to need sleep before learning in order to get your brain ready to initially make new memories or lay down those fresh memories. And if you causally take sleep away from some, someone, the memory circuits, circuits within the brain, and I know you've spoken about um, the structure before, a structure called the hippocampus, which is almost one of the informational inboxes of our brain, that becomes almost waterlogged like a sponge and we can't absorb new information when we are underslept. So that's the, f- the first sort of set of discoveries that we can, and I'm happy to double click on those, that sleep gets your brain ready to make new memories. But then you need sleep after learning to do what Quintilian was suggesting, which is take those freshly minted memories and sleep after learning will hit the save button on those new memories so that you don't forget. And in that way, you could argue, I think perhaps that sleep it almost helps sort of future-proof that information, those memories within the, in the brain. It's, mm. It cements them. And, and there are a number of different ways that we know that this happens um, that have been causally demonstrated. One of them is that sleep seems to transfer memories from a short-term vulnerable reservoir to a more permanent long-term storage site within the brain, almost as though you're acquiring those new files on a USB stick. And then at night, you plug it in and you transfer them over to to the hard drive from what we Mm. call the hippocampus to the cortex. I seem to remember there was work done in either mice or rats where they were were engaged in some maze learning task and then the same pattern of action potentials that was detected while they were learning the maze was detected during their periods of sleep. I don't know if it was REM sleep or, but there was some period where it was interpreted as a consolidation of the day's memories. Mm-hmm. That, that's right. Yeah. I don't yeah know that's, that, uh, that work started back in the 1990s and continues to this day. Mm-hmm. What they found is a phenomenon that we now call memory replay. And what they found was that when you place electrodes into these learning sites within rats during the day, as the, well, during the night, it turns out, but as they're running the maze and learning the maze when they're awake, the different cells in that memory structure will code different parts of the maze. And if you were to hang a different note, like a piano note, on each one of those brain cells, perhaps as the rat is learning and running around the maze, what you would hear from those different cells as it's running the maze is something along the lines of sort of every time the rat runs around the maze. And what was great is that they then started to continue to record when those rats fell asleep. And they kept listening, essentially, as it were. And what they found is that when they went into deep non-REM sleep, that was the first finding, that replay of that circuit, that signature of learning was replayed, but it was replayed somewhere between 5 to 20% faster. Hmm. So instead of sort of the waking signature, which would be ba-ba-ba-bum, ba-ba-ba-bum, 
during deep non-REM sleep, it was rum, 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 rum. And so mm. we realized that there was a compression of memory. It wasn't just memory replay, it was a replay, but a compressed version of the replay. Now we've since discovered that replay can also happen during rapid eye movement sleep. What's interesting there is that the speed of that replay seems to be about the same speed as wakefulness, or it's about 0.5 times the speed. In other words, it's mm. about half the speed. And I think that will bring us on, maybe if we have a chance to discuss dreaming, what that means about time and our structuring of time as we sleep and as yeah. we dream, what I think of as time dilation and time compression, but, and I'm sure we'll get there. So, so that's one of the mechanisms you're right too. So that's the second benefit that we cement. And we think of that replay almost like etching the, the memory into the circuit of the brain even more strongly, as if you're etching the signature of learning on a piece of glass. The third discovery that has been made helped us realize that sleep is much more intelligent than we ever imagined. That sleep and including dream sleep will intelligently interconnect those new memories together and it will also interconnect them with all of your past back catalog of information. And so it's almost a form of informational alchemy at night. And so you wake up with a revised mind-wide web of these associations. And perhaps that's in part one of the reasons that you are capable of divining new solutions the next day to previously impenetrable problems. And probably the reason that no one ever tells you, you should, Sam, you really need to stay awake on a problem, even though often we will try mm. to do that, you're told to sleep on a problem. And we can demonstrate that in the laboratory now with different types of tests where we found that sleep will, is you're probably two to three times more likely to discover a hidden rule in a problem set after you've had a night of sleep relative to when you remain awake, either awake across the day or across the night. It's not time of day dependent that's creating that. It's not just that when you test people in the morning, which turns out to be for the most people, for most people, I should say, after a night of sleep that you're just more creative and better at problem solving because you can deprive people of that sleep and test them the following morning. Time of day remains the same. Absence of sleep is different and they aren't as, as capable of problem solving. So that's the third benefit is this sort of associational capacity of, of sleep to interconnect things together. And I think I would argue that's the difference between knowledge which is learning the individual facts versus wisdom, which is really knowing what they all mean when you fit them together. That's what sleep is also doing for us. The, the, the fourth one that I referred to, which hasn't been mentioned, is forgetting. And we often think of forgetting as a bad thing. If I were to say, look, I've discovered something new that if you get it or are injected with it, you'll forget. And you think, my goodness, I, you know, I have a hard enough time trying to learn and remember things. Why would I want to forget? Well, it turns out forgetting is essential. You know, you don't want to remember everything. So, for example, you know, when I go into work tomorrow, I, I don't necessarily, and I come out of work at the end of the day. I want to remember where I parked my car that day. I don't want the confusion of remembering where I parked my car every other day of my life yeah. when I parked a car. 
those things have been forgotten. And what we realize now is that sleep almost acts in a slave-like fashion to the edict that has been given during the day. In other words, what you can do, and we've done this experimentally and we published this work a few years ago, you can tag memories after you've been exposed to them, after you've been exposed to that information, you can tag them as either to subsequently be remembered or to subsequently be forgotten. And then you allow people to sleep after those, that learning session and after those instructional cues. And sure enough, what sleep will do is not universally strengthen every single piece of information that you've learned. Sleep will selectively enhance those things that you learned are important and salient, and it will forget those things that were determined when you were awake as not being relevant. And so it splits those two apart and you get a greater differential, as it were. So I think there's a, there's a fascinating new area of sleep and memory, which is, you know, to, to, to forget. But I those forget. are the ways, I don't know if that gives a, a kind of a broad brushstrokes view of yeah. no, the that's, four that's different ways. Fantastic. I just as an aside, are you aware of those people who have something like perfect episodic recall of more or less every day mm -hmm. of their life? Have you seen this, yeah. this research? Yes, yeah, and we were we we've worked with some of those researchers. Uh, a lot of that work has come out of UC Irvine, and yeah, yeah, the sort of James McGore in the past and Larry Squire, right. And so we were looking at some of these patients too, and these not patients, sorry, these individuals. Yeah, <laughs> often we by, think by their lights, we're all the patients. We, we're all walking around <laughs> with neurological <laughs> disorders, and they have perfect recall. Yeah, isn't that the truth? And it sounds like a utopian existence. But there was a wonderful book that was written many years ago by an excellent neurologist, um, Luria, and yeah. he wrote a book called The Mind of the Mnemonicist. It's a lovely little book. And he was one of the first to try and understand from a scientific perspective these individuals who had perfect memory, these mnemonicists who can learn everything and, th and they forget nothing. And his the first half of the book is about him trying to test the limits and see at what point they failed. Where did they truly shelve off? They shelved off far later than all of us mere mortals did. Surely they must, at some point, not be able to remember everything. And he couldn't get to that point. They seemed to be able to remember everything. Yeah, I mean, and then in, in that case, you're talking about somebody who's remembering the, I think it was probably the, the decimal expansion of pi to, you know, 10,000 digits. And this is not somebody who's a memory champion, i.e. a normal person who's using various encoding strategies to push the limits of their ability to, to remember things. This is someone who's naturally right. just not forgetting you know, very large numbers and, and random sequences that were presented right. to him you could on say any to given them, day of his life. Yeah. you know. Oh, gosh. Wasn't it funny that the time when we went out to dinner uh, with your you know, late grandmother, gosh, it must have been 2000 and was it 2007 or eight? And their response is, it was 2007, it was um, February the 17th, and it had just snowed the day before, and you were wearing this fantastic, you know, suit, and I love those shoes, I'm so sorry that you don't have them anymore. And do you remember yeah. that on the menu, they were out of the poached eggs, and it was the whole reason that, you know, we wanted to go there. And you think, what on earth is happening? And it's just the way that they naturally operate. But Luria actually turned this around in this stroke of brilliance, and it's the second half of the book, 
he stopped asking what is the benefit of always being able to remember, and instead, what is the detriment of never being able to forget? And when he describes the lives of these individuals, you start to realize that it's really perhaps not a life that you would want to live necessarily. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that those out there who are listening to this who are this way wired, that their lives are any more, you know, lesser or or better. But he does paint a very interesting picture about essentially the power of forgetting. And it was that book that made me really sit up and understand the the importance of forgetting as Mm. a counterweight to remembering and how critical that is on both sides of the equation. Have we studied those patients? Yes, we have. We've patients, I keep saying that, sorry, those individuals. And we have found that overall, the sleep architecture is not necessarily different, but some of their sleeping brain waves are very different, particularly, for example, the sleep spindles that I described before, those short bursts of electrical activity. Those sleep spindles, we and many others have found now in both humans and adults, sorry, in both humans and animals. We've discovered that those spindles play a key role in both the memory replay orchestration that we discussed, and also the consolidation and the the cementing of those memories. And it's perhaps then no surprise that those hyper-remembering individuals seem to have a disproportionate amount of those sleep spindles. It's the one thing that stuck out to us in their data, like a sore thumb. So we are starting to find some sleep differences. Nice. Okay, well, let's move on to, I want to get to sleep and uh, I want to get to REM sleep and dreaming. But before we get there, let's, um, more in the vein of benefits and deficits here, let's talk about sleep and mental health. So this is another area where we have a very large series of different research programs um, looking at this. And it's been something that we've done for probably about the past 10 or so years. There is a very strong link here. I think the first thing to say is that in the past, in fact, 20 years of really studying this, we have not been able to discover a single psychiatric condition in which sleep is normal. And I think that that tells us so much about the close relationship between your sleep health and your mental health. And this probably will touch on some of the benefits of REM sleep and dreaming, but what we've since discovered is that sleep, including dream sleep, will provide a form of essentially overnight therapy. But before I I get to that, coming back to that link between a lack of sleep and psychiatric illness, or just sleep and emotions generally, I think many of us have a sense that how we emotionally behave during the day has some connection to our sleep the night before. And it's Mm -hmm. that example of a child you know, who's in a parent's arms and they're crying and the parent just looks at you and says, well, they just didn't sleep well last night. (laughs) As if there's some universal parental knowledge that bad sleep the night before equals bad mood and emotion uh, reactivity the next day. Speaking about that, the psychiatric disorders too, it's echoed in a wonderful quote from the English novelist and poet Emily Bronte, perhaps most famous for a stellar tale of Wuthering Heights, She once said that a ruffled mind makes for a restless pillow, which is is so evocative. And we now know that sleep does impact your emotional brain and the circuits of your emotional brain. And we've done some studies using brain imaging 
And mm. we found that without sleep, the emotional brain becomes hyperactive and irrational, almost pendulum-like, because there's a very deep structure within the brain that you've spoken about on this podcast many a time called the amygdala. And it's one of the centerpiece regions for the generation of emotions, including negative emotions. And when we looked at that structure in those people who had not had a night of sleep, we saw a profound oversensitivity. In fact, there was a, a modest but still substantial degree of emotional reactivity in those people who had had a night of sleep. And you want that. You don't want to become emotionally detached. You want to become appropriately emotionally sensitive. But in those people who didn't have sleep, their amygdala, that deep emotional center, was 60% more reactive under conditions of a lack of sleep. We then went on to ask a more basic question, which was, why? Why was your deep emotional center so reactive? And what we discovered was that there was another part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which you've mentioned so many times too, which in some ways you could argue is a little bit like a CEO of the brain that one of the things it does is help regulate our deep emotional impulses. That part of the brain is actually taken offline, or at least it is more deactivated when we are not getting sufficient sleep. And more specifically, the connection communication path between your frontal lobe and your deep emotional brain is eroded. So you become disconnected. And as a consequence, that's the reason why we believe insufficient sleep leads to this sense of you becoming all emotional gas pedal, all emotional accelerator pedal, and too little regulatory control break. And what's interesting is that that same neurological profile that we see in a lack of sleep, or caused by a lack of sleep, I should say, is observed in people who have, for example, in depression, but particularly in those with anxiety disorders, including things like PTSD, phobia disorders, etc. So that gave us some experimental clues as to why we know that there is such a tight bond between psychiatric illness and sleep impairment mm. and sleep disruption. Well, I don't think anyone, even with comparatively modest powers of introspection, would doubt the connection between getting bad sleep and being emotionally not at their best the next day. I mean, the irritability at a minimum based on being sleep deprived is, I can't imagine there's anyone who hasn't noticed that in themselves. But um, do we have, as we did in the, in the case of Alzheimer's, a picture of causality running the other way, where it 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 really is a um, uh, where we where it's not that um, a ruffled mind is delivering a uh, restless pillow, rather it's a a restless pillow delivering the ruffled mind, <laughs> because it, it, one could certainly speculate that depression or any other psychiatric condition could have as part of its phenotype the effect of degrading the quality of sleep. And it does. And in fact... So we just, we just got a, a perfectly perverse circle of causation here. Bad sleep well, makes exactly. you depressed and, more de and depression makes you sleep badly. And you can manipulate both of those in that direction. But what we've learned, and causally so, and I can, I can speak about that too, it is a two-way street. But I think the, the radical knowledge here is that for a long time, psychiatry thought it was a one-way street, that psychiatric disorders and psychiatric illness cause sleep disruption and sleep mm -hmm. problems. Now, we now know that that is true, that as people start to develop those conditions, 
sleep typically gets worse and sleep becomes more disrupted and you can induce you know negative mood states and you can induce higher degrees of depressogenic states in individuals and it does have a knock-on consequence on their sleep so you can manipulate it in that direction but what i think is that we've learned it's now a two-way street and if anything the traffic may be flowing more dominantly in the opposite direction mm. which is that the sleep disruption is not just a consequence of the psychiatric illness it may be a predisposing factor if not a causal factor and there was one study done by an italian team and it was i think it was a hard study in a sense it was both brave and ethically challenging because they took a group of people who were suffering from bipolar depression where you will have these sort of three different states where you will become very depressed states where you have mania where you're sort of bouncing off the wall and everything is possible in life and and then you have periods in between there where you're what we call sort of euthymic where you're neither of those two so they took a group of these patients who had bipolar disorder but who were in this state of stability they were neither manic nor depressed and then they started to sleep deprive them and through that sleep deprivation they were able to causally trigger the onset of a mania event in those individuals mm. and i think that that's a nice demonstration if not difficult and you know you could almost argue ethically debatable way of demonstrating that connection i think another way to get at this is to say like the alzheimer's disease story if that's the bad that happens when you take sleep away that you become you know emotionally moody and emotionally erratic and irrational and labile what is it then about sleep when you get it that provides an emotional benefit and so some years ago we tested a hypothesis that perhaps what sleep provides and particularly dream sleep is a form of as i said overnight therapy that sleep provides emotional first aid and what we've discovered is that sleep will act almost like a nocturnal soothing balm and it will take those difficult emotional experiences that we've had during the day sometimes even traumatic ones and it will take the the painful sting out of those memories and sleep almost helps divorce the emotion from the memory it's almost as though sleep takes the bitter rind emotional rind away from the informational orange so then the next day you come back and it's not as though you've forgotten the emotional experience you haven't mm. if anything it's been strengthened by sleep but the recollection of that emotional memory no longer comes with the same degree of visceral emotional reaction that you had at the time of the experience that made it an emotional memory to begin with so in other words you go to sleep with an emotional memory but you wake up with a memory of an emotional event but isn't itself any longer emotional which suggests that sleep can divorce the emotion it's almost like detoxing the emotion from the memory and so and i can describe the experimental work that where we did that but essentially what we discovered is that it's not time that heals all wounds but it was time during sleep and particularly during dream sleep rem sleep mm. that provided that emotional convalescence as it were so we have that evidence and we've now been doing a lot of work on sleep and anxiety too to see how sleep can take away and wash away anxiety uh, wash away I'm meaning you know metaphorically of course but it actually it could be with the glymphatic system but all of this does remind me there's another great quote by I think he's an American entrepreneur 
E. Joseph Kosman, and he once said that the best bridge between despair and hope is a good night of sleep, and that does seem to be what the evidence would support. Okay, well, this is a nice segue to the topic of REM sleep and dreaming, so let's jump into that. I guess my first question here is, what is the gating of uh, these various stages of sleep that um, bring us into REM? Uh, I mean, just just neurophysiologically speaking, is this a brainstem function that's orchestrating this, or what? What is uh, what is the gate to REM from the other stages? That battle that we described, that war between non-REM and REM is actually in some ways incorrectly described as a cerebral war because if anything, it's actually a brainstem war. And this work was done by a Harvard psychiatrist called Alan Hobson, who mm-hmm. recently passed away, who did a lot of work on, on dreaming subsequently and, and wrestled the Freudian analytical view of sleep out of the realm of psychiatry. And you can think of dreaming as different to non-REM sleep or REM, REM sleep is different to non-REM sleep. And here I'm going to make the, the crass assumption that when we speak about REM sleep, we're sort of talking about what most of us think of as dreaming versus non-REM sleep, where you can still get dreaming, but it's not that full version of dreaming. The dream state, the REM sleep state, can be defined as dramatically different based on both the anatomy of the brain that's lighting up or that is not lighting up, as well as the chemistry of the brain. So firstly, when we go into REM sleep, emotional centers of the brain, memory centers of the brain, motoric centers of the brain, and visual centers of the brain, as, and those emotional centers too that I mentioned, all of those light up when we go into REM sleep and we start dreaming. And in fact, some parts of the brain are up to 60% more active when we're in the dream state than when we're in awake, in the, the wake state. There is, however, one area of the brain that books that trend of activation when we go into REM sleep. And it's an area that we've just spoken about called the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that arguably makes us most human, and particularly the far left and far right side of the prefrontal cortex, what we call the lateral or the the dorsolateral prefrontal Mm -hmm. cortex. That part of the brain, when we stuffed people, wedged them inside an MRI scanner and started to have them go into REM sleep, that was actively shut down during the REM sleep dreaming state. And I'll come back to why that's important in a second. From a neurochemical perspective, and this is what really helped me come to the table with that hypothesis of the overnight therapy or emotional first aid hypothesis of of dreaming of REM sleep, Unlike the rest of the 24-hour period, there are, there are lots of what we call neuromodulators or neurotransmitters in the brain, and three of those are called noradrenaline or norepinephrine, serotonin or 5-HT, and another chemical called acetylcholine. And when we go into sleep and into non-REM sleep, levels of noradrenaline and serotonin, they start to drop down, but levels of acetylcholine are shut off. But as you go into REM sleep, the reverse is true. All of a sudden, serotonin and especially noradrenaline is shut down during REM sleep, whereas acetylcholine is released in high amounts Mm -hmm. and in some parts of the brain, like the hippocampus, two to three times the degree of release in that part of the brain relative to even when we're awake. And the reason that that's important is because noradrenaline is one of the neurochemicals that we know are associated with 
both hypervigilant, hyperconcentrated states, and also emotional and anxious states. And many people know of its sister chemical within the body called adrenaline, but upstairs in the brain, the chemical is noradrenaline or norepinephrine. And what we believed was happening during the dream state was that you could reactivate these emotional memories because memory centers were reactivated, emotional centers were reactivated, but you were doing so in a quote-unquote safe neurochemical environment that was devoid of this stress-related chemistry. And in that way, you could strengthen and reactivate and replay those emotional experiences. But in doing so, you could take away the emotion from those experiences. And that's why you came back the next day and things felt better. Mm -hmm. How does that track with the phenomenology of dreaming where you know, people obviously can have incredibly intense and stressful nightmares? What, what would you expect to be seen in terms of um, the, the activity of these neuromodulators? So one of the predictions of that theory that we had called overnight therapy for, for the dreaming state, was that there are conditions where this fails. And those conditions where it fails are conditions where that noradrenaline is, that stress-related chemistry is not shut down appropriately during dream sleep. And the quintessential demonstration of this is in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Because when you speak to those patients, often what they'll say to you is, look, you know, I just can't seem to get over the event. And what they mean in some ways is that Every time they relive that event, let's say it's a war veteran who's now back home and in the parking lot of the supermarket at the grocery store, and a car backfires, and all of a sudden they have the flashback of the artillery battle that they had, not only do they recall the details, the memory, the information of that experience, but unlike the rest of us, they regurgitate the same visceral emotional reaction that they had at the time of the experience telling us that the brain and perhaps sleep had not done its elegant trick of stripping away the emotion from the memory. And so it failed. And so what happens? Well, the next night we propose that the brain comes back to sleep and says, look, I'm sorry, I've still got this highly charged emotional memory. Please do your elegant trick of stripping the emotion away from the memory. And once again, it fails. And so you have what experientially we proposed as the common symptom, in fact, it's part of the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, which is repetitive nightmares, that you keep replaying these experiences because you can't deal with them. You can't process them hmm. during sleep. And if you look at those patients, if you look at their cerebrospinal fluid, for example, they have excessively high levels of noradrenaline. And they also have significantly less REM sleep and disrupted REM sleep. So perhaps what's happening is that they don't have enough REM sleep and also they don't have, when they do get REM sleep, the right neurochemical profile to accomplish one of the functions of the dreaming state, which is this sort of therapy benefit. And at the time I was proposing that theory, I just offered it at a conference. And a psychiatrist there called Murray Raskind, um, who works at Puget Sounds just near Seattle, he studied war veterans. And he was finding a perplexing data point where he was treating his war veterans with a drug called prazosin, which is a drug that helps with blood pressure, helps lower the blood pressure. But because it's a generic drug, because it was in the veterans, the VA system, and, and it was a cheaper drug, 
The drug also crosses something called the blood-brain barrier, so it gets into the brain itself. And what he was finding was that when he treated these patients with this drug, prazosin, which lowers noradrenaline levels both in the body and in the brain, firstly, those patients were starting to have a better profile of REM sleep. And they were also coming back to him and saying, I'm just not having those repetitive nightmares anymore. So there I was at that stage. I hadn't done my experimental work yet. I had an experimental theory in search of clinical data, and he had clinical data in search of an experimental explanation. And we both at the conference, it was hers on the back of your neck stuff. And then I got him to, he flew down to Berkeley. We had a whole day at the lab. We went out to dinner, spoke too late into the evening. And Prazosin has gone on with some failures, but also some success to become one of the pharmacological treatments for repetitive nightmares in Hmm. PTSD. So Hmm. that I think helps perhaps address your question of what's going on when we have these extreme versions of repetitive, very emotional dreams. The other possibility though comes back to recall and something you elegantly described before, which is the bias of recall. It's entirely possible that when we are dreaming and during the dream, because those levels of noradrenaline, that stress chemistry is low, we're not actually overtly emotional in our dreams themselves. It's when we wake up and are shocked awake by, in some ways, what's happening, that we regain wakefulness. And when we regain wakefulness, we regain a vast swath of that noradrenaline. And so our remembrance, our interpretation of the dream when we wake up is Mm -hmm. one of being very emotional and highly emotional charged. But at the time when we're experiencing that, we actually don't know if it's truly emotional or not. Yeah, it's interesting that um, one marker of stress and emotionality is certainly heart rate. And many of us who are tracking our sleep get a, a read, however accurate, of our heart rate throughout the night. And I'm surprised that I almost never see my heart rate spike significantly. I mean, my, my heart rate you know, for the, the whole night is something like 50 beats per minute. And you would think if I'm having dreams where I'm being chased by a hyena, you would think that you think, well, you think I'd get my heart rate up to at least uh, 80 or, or uh, if not 180 uh, having that experience. But um, I've never seen that. I mean, perhaps I've missed it. But what, what do you know from, no. from peripheral physiological measures of that kind? You're right. You know, you can see this almost bowing effect throughout the night. Uh, It's almost like a banana effect where your heart rate gradually, in fact, your heart rate has to decelerate as you're going towards sleep and into sleep. You have to downscale that fight or flight branch of the nervous system. And this is where I think perhaps a conversation at some point about meditation will come in and why Mm. it may be helpful for some people. But And then the heart rate declines. Now, one of the things that does happen, however, during REM sleep, which is sort of counter-argumentative to to my point, is not necessarily a change in your heart rate, but in the beating characteristic of your heart, and as a consequence, what we call your heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. Not on average, how many times has your heart had a beat within a minute, but how consistent are those beats from one to the next to the next within that minute? That's the difference between heart rate and heart rate variability. And what we see during REM sleep is something really quite profound. All of a sudden, your your system, what we call the automatic nervous system or the autonomic nervous system, 
which controls things like your heart rate and the speed of it, the calmness of the nervous system or the activeness of the nervous system, that becomes decoupled from, from the brain as best we can tell. And you go into these very unpredictable swings where you have an accelerated heart rate and then it decelerates dramatically and then it accelerates and then it decelerates and then it, it goes, and it's really not predictive at all. It's very variable as if the system has lost its ability to regulate the autonomic nervous system during REM sleep. So there is some evidence for that, but that won't really show up because these sleep trackers will net net average. I don't know, do you use a ring to track your sleep? Yeah, you, um, one or, the of the, I'm actually using yeah. two now, but so yeah, one of them is the Aura okay. ring. And yeah, uh, yeah I, do, I do see- I and mean, you will see that. I do see what seems to be some correlation between spikes in heart rate variability and REM. Exactly. I'm and just so kind of eyeballing it, you know, it's not- precise. So that's the only evidence that we have that there may be at least something going on. And we've started to do a lot of work in this area. We've known this for some time, but nobody has really understood necessarily why that that's the case in terms of the, is there a function to it? And it could just be, you know, a pure epiphenomenon that it's, it serves no function whatsoever. Or it could be that it serves a collection of different functions that we haven't studied yet. We mm. kind of know the reasons why from a physio and neurobiological perspective, but we don't know what the sort of the functional reasons as to why that that happens. Right. But to your original point about the possible vagaries of memory here, you would expect just heart rate itself to go up to something more analogous to uh, what it would be in the waking state under similar conditions if, in fact, being chased by... A, uh, a maniac in the dream state was as stressful as it seems to you upon recall. Mm, correct. Um, I, I don't know if you if, ever see that. I mean, do, were... do you, when you track people in the lab and they're in a state of REM, from which uh, you know they get awakened and and they report having a terrible nightmare, do you ever see that their actual heart rate has gone up to 150 beats a minute? No, you you just don't see that, and hmm. I think that that's a very good point if dreams were as emotional at the time that we're having those dreams as we claim they are upon awakening, the heart would be doing something very different than what the heart actually is doing when we're mm. dreaming. And uh, I guess a related question, so that the, the heart is pretty quiescent, but the rest of the body is emphatically so if you have um, the normal suppression of motor activity. Uh, obviously, there are um, parasomnias that um, where this is not the case. But what do we know about the paralysis that is uh, the signature of REM sleep? So you're right that when we go into REM sleep dreaming, as we mentioned, the the brain will paralyze the body, and for probably obvious reasons, which is that so we we're not popped out of the gene pool very quickly by acting out your dreams. It would be rather maladaptive if you're not perceiving the outside world particularly well and you start to think that you can fly and you dive out of your apartment window, things won't end well for you. So the brain has understood a system of how to do that and it paralyzes your body. So you're locked into a physical incarceration at night and we know the mechanisms. So that same brainstem system that we described, where there is this battle that plays out between non-REM and REM. And in fact, Technically, there's also a battle within each of those stages where 
the more and more REM sleep that you have, for example, the more the REM sleep system will gradually start to turn itself off. It's called a negative reinforcing or self-reinforcing system. But in that same area of the brainstem, there is another nucleus which will send a signal not up into the brain, which activates the brain when we go into REM sleep to have all of these remarkable sort of anatomies and physiologies that we've discussed. It will send a signal south through, you know, past your your neckline down into the body. And it's a signal that goes all the way down your spinal cord, and it will actively paralyze what we call the alpha motor neurons within your spinal cord. These are the neurons that will control your voluntary skeletal muscles. So for example, if you feel it as though you've got an itchy nose and you raise your hand deliberately to scratch your nose, or you lean across to grab your coffee cup and you take a swig, hopefully not at this time of day that we're recording it, that's what we're talking about, these voluntary skeletal muscles. Now, the involuntary muscles of your body, things that control your respiration and your heart, don't worry, they are spurred from the paralysis, once again, for obvious reasons. But the voluntary skeletal muscles, with the exception of two clusters of of muscles, undergo paralysis. And this is the reason that you are locked down when you go into dream sleep. The, The muscles that don't undergo that, and we don't really understand why this is the case, the first are what we call the extraocular muscles. These are the muscles that sit around your eyeball and they control the movement of your eyes up and down and the movement of your eyes left and right. And of course, it's very obvious now we understand the term of REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. Those are voluntary muscles. You determine if you want to look left, look right, look up or look down. But those muscles aren't paralyzed. Otherwise, you wouldn't be having these rapid eye movements. So that's very strange. And then the other is that there's a set of inner ear muscles that also don't undergo the paralysis for reasons, again, we're, we're still not clear on. But hmm. that's part of the functional anatomy of, of REM sleep. This paralysis is very unusual. And sometimes as we get older, that mechanism will begin to fail. It happens more so in males than in females. Typically, the age of onset of that failure is somewhere in the 50s or onwards. And if it ends up becoming significant and a condition, it's called rapid eye movement sleep behavioral disorder or REM mm-hmm. sleep behavioral disorder, where you start acting out your dreams. Now, this is not unique to humans. We also see it in other species. For example, dogs will act out their dreams when they go into REM sleep. It typically does not happen to younger dogs. It again happens with the aging process. And I would argue that it's perhaps some of the best indirect hand-waving, mm, scratch-your-chin kind of evidence that we have that we're not alone in this thing called the act of dreaming, that other species dream as well. And sometimes I think when you see some of these REM sleep behavioral disorder events in animals and dogs in, in particular, it's very difficult to argue that they're probably not having a dream experience, but we can't mm-hmm. prove that because we can't ask for a dream report. Now, in, uh, w- with REM sleep behavior disorder in people, how complex can the behavior be? I mean, we're talking about someone just moving around in bed, or are we talking about those cases where someone gets out of bed, has seemingly coherent conversations with other people, uh, you know, attacks people violently, and, you know, behaves in, in all kinds of other inappropriate ways, and then 
remembers nothing of it upon you know the subsequent entry into a proper waking state um is that is that rem sleep behavior disorder or is that some other condition it can go to that extreme and often the rem sleep behavioral disorder events are that extreme where they're usually quite complex behaviors however these should not be confused with other so you mentioned before something called parasomnias mm -hmm. which are a collection of sleep disorders typically movement related or behavioral related disorders in sleep obviously para meaning sort of you know around penumbra of of sleep they happen around this thing called sleep now sleep walking sleep talking sleep eating which is a thing mm -hmm. i think the the latest one was sleep sexting where you're sending inappropriate text messages not recommended These things yes. not recommended does not do good things for you or the recipient or your profile publicly but these things are typically not happening from rapid eye movement sleep they are actually occurring during deep non-rem sleep hmm. or more specifically a state of mixed consciousness and we don't quite understand what the trigger is but normally when you have those types of events where the behaviors are much more routinized and very basic for example you'll get up you know you'll walk over to the cabinet you'll open a drawer close the drawer get back into bed or mm -hmm. you lift the glass of water up from the bed you put it to your mouth you put it back down but even though there's no water in it you're sort of doing this repetitive strange very routine behavior the behaviors that come from rapid eye movement sleep from dream sleep are usually much more complex but what seems to happen for reasons again we don't truly understand is that when you are in deep sleep sometimes there can be a trigger within the nervous system or the brain that tries to force the brain awake so you go from the basement of deep sleep and you try to race to the penthouse of wakefulness but you get some stuck somewhere in between almost like the 13th floor and that's where you act out these very prototypical behaviors and what's striking is that i can show you video of patients where they clearly seem to be awake in the sleep laboratory where they're doing something looks like they're smoking a cigarette or they're sort of making maneuvers maybe they're punching the pillow and yet the brainwave patterns when we we can measure them when then they don't have movement noise or movement what we call movement artifact in them it's clear that the brain is in deep sleep so the mm. brain is in deep sleep but the behavior seems to be commensurate with that we would associate with something like wakefulness and it's what we call a mixed state of consciousness can those events be violent yes they can be violent are they often violent not always no have there been extreme conditions where people have hurt others in their sleep yes have they even murdered other people yes they have there was a famous case a gentleman called kenneth parks who many years ago ended up having something called homicidal somnambulism which was essentially the fact that he alleged or it was alleged by his defense that he woke up in the middle of the night he walked out the door he drove somewhere between 10 to 12 miles to his in-laws he murdered his mother-in-law by stabbing her he strangled his father-in-law i can't remember if he passed away or not then he got back into his car and then on the drive home he only became awake looked at his hands realized that he'd severed many of the critical tendons in his hands with the knife the kitchen knife that he'd killed his mother-in-law with 
and drove straight to the police and said, I think I've hurt some people. And he ended up not receiving a, a non-guilty verdict. And subsequently, people have tried that defense hmm. too, and it has not worked out. But the, the case, and the, it's in the literature, is really very well made for the fact that it's in all likelihood, when you put all of the pieces together, he probably was having a sleepwalking event, parasomnia. It's so strange it, to classify that as sleep. It seems, I mean, obviously it's some state of his nervous system, but you're, you're, you're talking about a state, I mean, if we're, if we're going to classify it as sleep, this is a state of sleep where the severing, I mean, forget about all the other chaos uh, he experienced during that period, the severing of the tendons in his hands with a knife yeah. where it was insufficient to wake him up from so-called sleep. So, I mean, obviously the, the, this behavior came out of some state of his brain, but it's a, um, it's a very peculiar picture of, of his neurology. And it's, it's a very, you know, ethically you could argue it's a very difficult case because at one level he was not conscious, he was not aware of what he was doing. And therefore, that's the reason why the defense leveraged the defense that they did and why he ended up receiving a non-guilty verdict as a consequence. But you could also argue, well, if he didn't do it, who did do it? Hmm. <laughs> Is that really mere non-culpa? And so you can wrestle around that. And we currently accept that, no, there are certain things that seem to happen that you are not consciously aware of that you would not in your waking rational state be either wishing to do or even from an ethical moral standpoint capable of doing that you may transact when you are asleep and therefore mm -hmm. in the criminal system in the eyes of the criminal system you should not be responsible for those acts okay so to close out this chapter on rem sleep and dreams there's this other condition wherein one essentially wakes up while dreaming. And this is known as lucid dreaming in the West, uh, largely on the basis of the work of uh, Stephen LeBurge, who was at Stanford mm -hmm. at some point. I don't know where he is now. But you know, this, there's a long tradition of uh, what's called dream yoga in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, which is the practice of noticing that you're dreaming, bringing to mind all of the reality testing mechanisms one has in the waking state and yet persisting in the dream you know in, in one of the tricks here is to learn not to wake up and and get kicked out of the dreamscape so then you can engage the experience of dreaming uh with the conscious awareness that it's a dream and that you know that there are many degrees of freedom that you you wouldn't have otherwise known to access I gotta think. I, I I actually don't know. I haven't looked at the, at the research here. Uh, I would imagine you have. You know what you described in the ordinary condition of REM sleep. This is characterized by diminished activity in the in the lateral prefrontal cortex, which I, I, I gotta think is the the neuroanatomical basis for a the loss of reality testing that is so characteristic of normal dreams under conditions of lucid dreaming. I have to think the, the frontal cortex comes back online. What do we know about lucid dreaming from the perspective of those who study it in the lab? So returning back to the anatomy that we described and the dreaming state itself, it's probably worth noting that for non-lucid dreamers, dreaming in some ways is a case where you are flagrantly psychotic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
I can give you five reasons for my nightly diagnosis. Because when you go into dream sleep, you start to see things which are not there. So you're hallucinating. You believe things that couldn't possibly be true. So you're delusional. You become confused about time and place and person. So you're suffering from what we call disorientation. You have these sort of interesting emotional experiences. And then how wonderful you wake up the next morning and you forget most, if not all, of that mm -hmm. dream experiencing. So you're suffering from amnesia. Yeah, I would, I would add one more piece here is that, and this has always struck me as the strangest component of, of dreams, is that you're completely unsurprised to be in that condition. I mean, you, you transition from, you know, your last memory was of getting into bed, in the, in the same bed you get into every night, presumably, and going to sleep. And then your very next experience is of, you know, everything you said, of, you know, being in impossible situations, doing impossible things. And yet, your mind is completely unsurprised to find yourself there. So you have absolutely no purchase on the psychological continuity that would allow you to be astonished that you are finding yourself in this new condition. So yeah, that's uh, you're you're a madman while dreaming, and then there's this possibility of of waking up to the circumstance. You're right. And it also, it violates so many of the principles of waking life. And yeah, physics, called wakefulness. you're talking to the, dead the, people. You know, right. Yeah. It, it's, and you would question that at a, in a heartbeat if you were sane when you're awake. But there's a, a degree of acceptance. And part of the reason we believe that that happens is because the prefrontal cortex is taken offline. So in some ways, the, the prison guards are away and the prisoners are running amok. <laughs> mm. And so as a consequence, you become sort of, you know, full of past memories and experiences. It's a very visual experience. It's, it is motoric, but it's also highly irrational and illogical. And also, for the most part, you don't get to control what's happening. It happens to you. You don't inflect some degree of control over what happens to you, unlike your waking life. And what happens with lucid dreamers that we've discovered is that that part of the brain starts to come back online. And we started seeing this when we were doing electrical recordings, where you would look at lucid dreamers and non-lucid dreamers, and you would map the electrical activity, particularly the higher frequency or what we call the gamma activity, which is sort of around 40 cycles per second or what we call 40, uh, 40 hertz. And that activity over the prefrontal cortex would die down when most people went into REM sleep. And even in fact, when lucid dreamers who were not yet lucid were dreaming, that activity in the, over the frontal cortex was reduced. But then when the lucid dreamers gain lucidity, that activity re-emerged as if the prefrontal cortex was coming back online. And now we can also do the same types of studies with fMRI experiments and with brain imaging. And we see that same re-emergence of the prefrontal activity in lucid dreamers when they become lucid. Mm. And lucid dreaming technically as a definition is simply the fact that you are aware that you are dreaming whilst you're dreaming. But 
most people think of lucid dreaming as this ability not just to know that you're dreaming as you're dreaming, but to start to take control, volitional control, yeah. and now you decide what happens in your dream. And there is very good evidence scientifically. We used to think, talk about a charlatan science of sleep. If you were to think about trying to study dreams and then even go one step further and say, I'm going to study lucid mm -hmm. dreams, it sounds preposterous. But we actually can now verify it. One of the things we can do is have communication with the participants. And you think, well, hang on a second. If they're asleep and they can't move and they can't talk, which is no different for lucid dreamers, they still are immobilized and shut down and locked down. It's just that they are doing something inside of the dream that most of us can't do. You can say, well, how do you know? How do you get objective verification as they're doing this, that they've become lucid and that they're doing whatever they claim to do in their dream? Well, this comes back to the eyes. We said that the one muscle group that is spurred from the paralysis are the extraocular muscles. And that's the reason that we have these rapid eye movement sleep periods, these rapid eye movements. Well, you can then start to create essentially a sign language or a Morse code language, but using the eyes. And you can predetermine that with the lucid dreamers. And then when they go into sleep, because we're recording their eye movements with electrodes as they're sleeping, we get to know what they are doing with their eyes. And when they give us those very deliberate signals, the first signal could be, you know, three upward movements of the eyes, which never happens during REM sleep, very mm -hmm. intentional. That signifies that they've just become lucid. Okay, great. So now we've got a definitional boundary of REM sleep when they were not lucid and REM sleep where they were lucid. And we can look at those two patterns. We can go further and say, when you are shifting your eyes three times to the left, that means you're clenching your left hand in the dream. And when you flick your eyes three times to the right, you're clenching your right hand in the dream. Now, in the real world, they're not moving their hands at all because they're paralyzed. But in the dream state, they're doing that. And when we look with brain scanners at those specific motor cortex regions that control the left hand and the right hand, sure enough, far above statistical chance, when they tell us that they're now deliberately, consciously deciding to move their left hand, the Part of the motor cortex that controls the left hand, which turns out to be the right motor cortex, lights up. And likewise with the right hand in terms of the left motor cortex. So you can get objective definitive proof. You can have people tell you that they are now going to try and bring themselves to orgasm. And people have done this. And obviously in males, that is used to be in back in the old days, easier as a way to verify mm -hmm. a brave <laughs> brave braver scientist than i would right. be to, to go in there and verify that that claim but they would do it nonetheless too and so i hope that explains something about what we think is part of the reason why some people become lucid that lucid dreaming is real that we have the science to prove lucid dreaming the question now is is lucid dreaming functional or is it not functional and or in fact is lucid dreaming not just adaptive and beneficial is it maladaptive mm -hmm. and unwise to be doing those are key questions yeah what do you think there i mean it, it seems from the experiential side to be all to the good i mean you're you're able to confront things that would otherwise terrify you and um, you're able to just have a tremendous amount of fun you can fly you can you know meet people that uh, you or the or their simulacrums that you wouldn't otherwise meet you can you can just decide to use various uh, superpowers only available to you in dreams mm -hmm. but 
Did you think there's a reasonable concern that it is undermining some of the native benefits of ordinary dreaming? I wrestled between those two ideas, and I've tried to test that question a number of different ways in my mind. One of them is firstly from a numbers perspective. We know that perhaps somewhere around 80% of the general public typically do not lucid dream, or certainly don't do it very frequently at all. And 20% of the, the population have either co-opted it or do it naturally, which from one perspective you could argue evolutionarily, well, if lucid dreaming was so beneficial for the species, then mm. wouldn't the dominant theme be that 80% of the people are doing it? If it's such a powerful adaptive trait as you described, surely we would have found a way long ago to be doing it more frequently and more often. And the fact that it's not the default case, that it is the more of the outlier than the norm, you could argue tells you something or at least shines a light in one hypothetical direction. The problem with that argument, of course, is that it makes an assumption, which is that human beings have stopped evolving, and we haven't. And you could argue that the 20% who are now doing it naturally, and uh, lucid dreaming, I mean, maybe they are the next forefront of hominid evolution. Hmm. And we don't need to necessarily worry so much about AI as we need to worry about the people who are lucid hmm. dreamers, because they are going to become the super race and, and take over. So I can argue it in different ways. I think the other way you can think about it is, should we worry about trying to take over a process that perhaps once again, Mother Nature may have long understood what the prescription for our dream events and experiences are that coming night, and let her run her blueprint manifesto for what we should be dreaming. And for us not to think about hijacking what she would otherwise normally do, because we think we know something a little bit more than she does, and we're smarter than millions of years of evolution. That's another way of mm -hmm. looking at it. And we can come on to the f another set of functions of, of dreaming, which is why I think it could favor your hypothesis, which would be maybe it is a great way to harness the power of dreaming. We know that for many of the benefits, both the creative benefits that we described for dreaming and also those emotional therapy benefits of dreaming, it's not just that you sleep, and it's not simply that you dream, you need to be dreaming of the specific things that you're either going to get creatively remembering the next day, or dreaming of the things that you want to emotionally process and get mm. over. And I'm happy to go into the details experimentally for either one of those, but suffice to say that, in other words, sleep and dreaming are necessary for those benefits, for those specific benefits, but they're not sufficient you have to be asleep, you have to be dreaming, but you have to be dreaming about, about very specific things to get those very specific benefits. So in mm. other words, if that's true, could we not harness the power of those and focus our dreaming attention on the things that we think are most emotionally challenging in our lives and try to resolve them by the right. next day? Right. Well, that once again assumes that you know what is best to resolve. Maybe that that is what you think you should be working on emotionally at night. But it turns out that if you work with a therapist during the day, what you think is the, the problem ends up actually not really being the problem. It's something else. <laughs> and maybe that's the difference between the hubris of thinking that we know better and we should take control. I honestly don't know, Sam. I, 
I can, I keep arguing it either way with myself. And I am, just for the record, I am not a natural lucid dreamer. I have had lucid dreams, but, and nor have I tried to actively develop it in myself. Okay, well, this uh, provides a nice segue to the topic of the connection between meditation and sleep. Uh, what do we know about, I, mean, I can say anecdotally, that um, I know many great meditators who are terrible sleepers, and I know many great sleepers who are terrible meditators, so there is a, a possible dissociation there. But what do we know in the, in the general case? I think some of the early studies looking at insomnia found that it did seem to be beneficial. One of the earliest of those studies was conducted by James Wyatt and Rachel Member, Rachel Member down at uh, Stanford. And they conducted a lovely prospective intervention study with insomnia patients across, I think it was about eight weeks, I could be wrong. And they used two different flavors of, of a mindful practice relative to a control condition, which was basically just self-monitoring. We can go into the details. But what they found very early on was that the mindfulness intervention, those people who were developing a mindful practice across those eight weeks, had at least two sleep benefits. Firstly, and strikingly, they ended up falling asleep by about 40 minutes faster than they would otherwise. Now, these were people with really quite significant uh, insomnia, and maybe we'll get the chance to speak about the different flavors of insomnia relative to the, the self-monitoring active control condition. And second, that the overall level of their insomnia dropped by about 35% which as a context is not dissimilar to that which is claimed for sleeping pills. The second study that came along, or second set of work that I became familiar with, was looking at older adults. And again, it was actually led by someone we've already spoken about, Mike Irwin at UCLA. And older adults are a difficult case because they are often people who, for whom sleep is especially difficult to improve for many reasons. And they brought older adults into a randomized controlled prospective study. And this one, I think it was a month or something like six weeks. Mm. And you were placed into one of two groups, either mindfulness-based meditative practice or standard sleep hygiene education practice across those six weeks. And that was the active control. And what they found was that unlike the active control that where they were getting lots of education about um, sleep hygiene, the mindfulness-based practice group showed a significant reduction in their sleep problems. And in fact, I think there was about a 25% benefit in the sleep difficulty profile based on this uh, a valid assessment tool that we use. To give you a sense of that, it provided what's called an effect size of 0.89, which for those folks out there for whom that is gibberish, it means that it's considered to be a large scientific effect, um, an effect size of 0.89. Yeah. What was, however, interesting is that a more recent analysis was done, and it's something called a meta-analysis. And they take together all of the studies that have been done on sleep and meditation, and they kind of crush them all together, and they look and they weed out things that are not necessarily relevant. And they examined over 18 different trials where they had specific control conditions. And I think it was probably over about 1,500, 1,600 individuals in total that they ended up gathering the data for. 
And here they were focused on the quality of sleep rather than the quantity of sleep, because many of those studies weren't objectively measuring the quantity of the sleep. So this was self-reported quality. Mm -hmm. But what they found was that overall meditation improved the sleep quality of those people significantly relative to the control conditions. And it was somewhere between an effect size of 0.3 and 0.4, which is what we would consider as moderate. It's not a, a, a very large effect size, but it's still a significant and moderate effect size. I should note though that, as I recall from that paper, they looked at two different control conditions. One was a more sort of passive control condition, like self-monitoring, for example, relative to meditation. The other was a much more sleep-active control condition, particularly using things such as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is right now our gold standard treatment for insomnia. And when you compare it to that very well-proven therapy for insomnia, CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, meditation did not beat out CBTI. But what was also interesting is that meditation wasn't inferior to it either. Hmm. And what that tells me from that meta-analysis is that there are multiple routes to better sleep. Meditation for some people is one of them, but it's not the only one, which you could argue is good news for those people who don't find meditation to be something that is for them. And I should say for the record here too, I am one for whom specifically pre-sleep meditation does actually help them. So I just want to be transparent. I'm trying not to be biased, but I have been meditating for about seven years now, and I have found it to be a benefit. So the studies overall, I would say, have seemed to suggest some moderate benefit. Probably at least three different things to note, though. First, what we don't understand is dose and timing. In other words, we don't know when, if meditation is efficacious for sleep, when is the right time to be meditating? Does it matter or does it not matter? If you look at some of the usage statistics for some of the apps, and I suspect you may have, have done this too for your wonderful meditation app, it's interesting. A lot of people will meditate in the morning, but a lot of people seem to be meditating also in the evening, almost as though they are trying to self-medicate their state of sleep difficulty or insomnia. And it was only when some of the meditation companies stopped thinking that we shouldn't keep telling people that they're meditating at the wrong time and they need to be doing it, you know, when they wake up first thing, or maybe we should realize that that is an opportunity for us. And then they started creating things like sleep stories or sleep specific meditations. So they went with the data rather than went against it. So, and we also don't know the frequency, you know, how frequently and what's the the dose of that? Do you need to be meditating for an hour or will 10 minutes do it? What's the dose response of meditation to sleep? And what's the timing related response for sleep? Yeah. We don't know yeah. anything like that right now. To me, that's essential. Well, again, anecdotally, I don't know if this has been studied, but on the topic of dose, I can say that it's very common on a meditation retreat where you're, you're going to silence and your goal is really to do nothing but meditate. I mean, you have 12 or more hours of formal practice that day, but um, it really every other moment is a moment of practice because you're in silence and you're just trying to link all of your moments of mindfulness together, you know, every waking moment and even in your dreams if you're attempting to be lucid there. So on a retreat of any significant length, I mean, certainly when you get out to a month or more, it's very common for people to 
have cut their sleep in half or or even more. I mean, I, you know, people who are who are sleeping no more than four hours a night and sometimes less than that. And I, I, so I don't know if spending that much time in formal meditation is just causing the sleep pressure never to build up or if people are, in fact, nodding off and they're unaware of it. Hmm. But there, there's definitely an experience that many of us have had where you're just, it seems that the more you meditate, the less you need to sleep. But that's not as obviously an unusual case of being on retreat. That's not being out in the world, living a normal life in addition to periods of meditation. I've heard this too, and a lot of people have asked me over the years, I've heard that people who meditate, especially long-term practitioners who do an intense practice, or have an intense practice, I should say, often report needing, quote-unquote, less sleep. What data do we have? We don't have very much data. One thing that we have realized recently is, it's quite striking, that individual cells in your brain can sleep. <laughs> and what mm. I mean by that is, when people were recording the individual neurons in animals, even when the animal was awake, some of those cells in the cortex would just have a little dip down into deep sleep brainwave patterns, and then would come back up again, almost like they're just having a little sip, a little soups on of, of sleep, and then they would return to the sort of waking state, typically happening during quiet, restful states. So I like the suggestion that you had, which is perhaps what's happening is you don't quite realize that your brain is going into states of sleep, and therefore net, net overall, and even individual parts of your brain or even individual cells of your brain are actually dipping themselves into sleep during those long meditative practices. So in fact, you are still getting what you quote unquote need, you're just not getting it in the traditional way. And maybe that tells us about a dissociation that the way that we currently stage sleep, where you have to be non-responsive to the environment, but it's reversible. And you know, you're clearly not in that state when you're meditating. It's a very different state, of course, that's the goal, but it's not a classic deep slow wave sleep state. But perhaps there is some slow wave sleep happening. And that is what relieves the pressure or even the drive to get the standard amount of sleep at night. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that that's anecdotal for some people, but it's not common. And there was a paper, one of the few papers that looked at the electrical brainwave activity in intense meditators. And it was done by Richie Davidson, who yeah. um, you, are, you know her very well, and a sleep researcher also at Wisconsin called Giulio Tononi. And they looked at long-term practitioners, and they brought them in, and they had them do an intense practice. And I think we're talking over four hours spread in, what was it? It was either 60-minute chunks or 45-minute chunks. And three of those chunks happened in the morning, three of them in the afternoon. And I think they were doing either, I think, think it was Vipassana and or Metta. I, I can't, mm -hmm. I, I could be wrong there. And he is in sort of a randomized order. And what they found was firstly, when they looked at their sleep that subsequent night following the meditative practice, not only was the brain not having less, <laughs> there's a, a lot of negatives there, sorry, 
what was actually happening was the brain was having more of the slow and especially the ultra slow brainwave activity of deep non-REM sleep together with more brain activity in other frequency bands as well. But it included changes and increases in the amount of deep slow wave sleep brainwave activity. And this was especially true in the first half of the night. So what I find interesting is that that data perhaps argues that your sleep need is not reduced. If anything, the sleep need may be increased. I don't know if that evidence argues that meditation increases the drive to sleep or meditation allows the generation of sleep. One is a passive state. The other is more of a proactive state. One is just, you know, allowing something to happen. The other is demanding it to happen. And I don't know which of those two it is. Hmm. But I think, I, I truly don't think we've got the data right now. There are too many people for me for whom they report a reduced sleep need. So if you forced me to cleave to one of those two mechanistic explanations, I would probably favor the fact, just as you mentioned, that during the meditative practice itself, they are actually experiencing micro phases of sleep that decrease the nighttime pressure of that sleep, mm -hmm. or for that sleep, I should say. Yeah, and it, it might not be, it, it's, you know, as with so much in the study of meditation, it really matters who you're talking about, you know, which is to say that there are many people who are, who are practicing, quote, mindfulness and, and doing something very different from, from what uh, an expert might be doing. And even in the case of experts, there, there are different ways of approaching uh, these practices. And there could just be different consequences for different people. I mean, I remember my friend, Joseph Goldstein, who's a, who's a wonderful mm. Vipassana teacher and, and a great meditator himself. But, you know, for many years, I, th I think this is still true of him, but for as long as I've known him, he's been a pretty terrible sleeper. And, you know, he's just, he's very wakeful. I mean, when he, when he lies down to go to sleep, he's incredibly mindful and he's incredibly aware of everything. And he stays aware much longer than seems optimal. And I've certainly had that experience myself. So let's, let's just segue from here into all of the prescriptive things you might um, recommend. I guess we can use my case as a, um, as a through line here. I mean, I, I'm sure I have done myself no favors in recent years around things like sleep hygiene and alcohol use and caffeine use and napping or not napping. There's so many things that um, uh, one begins to do in one's life without thinking about the consequences on sleep. And it, it wasn't until wasn't until I got this first sleep tracking device, the Aura Ring. I honestly don't know how much credence to give the data I get. Perhaps you you validated it, but I, you know, I have a another sleep tracking device, which is this uh, the, this Why Things mat you put under your mattress. I just got that actually in anticipation of this conversation, just wanting to get a, a reference uh, and some kind of sanity check against the Aura Ring. And the first thing to point out with respect to these two sleep trackers is that they're they're somewhat discrepant in the data they're giving me. They're not not entirely so, but they're they're definitely nights where they, they fundamentally disagree about how much sleep I got and how much I was in each respective stage. So that's um, somewhat disconcerting. 
But uh, I just want to talk to you about what you recommend here with respect to the things we ingest uh, regardless of our sleep needs, the things we may or may ingest uh, in the hopes of getting better sleep. I think I can probably save us a little time. I, I know you're not a big fan of um, melatonin or um, uh, valerian or CBD or um, most prescription drugs, although I guess we should, we should probably address prescription drugs a, a little bit in, in terms of what you think their, their utility might mm-hmm. be in certain cases. But maybe let's just take it from the top. I know that uh, sleep hygiene is a, um, a phrase that is increasingly familiar to people. What does it mean to you, and uh, what should we be doing so as to um, uh, not be obviously shortchanging ourselves with respect to the chance of getting a good night's sleep? Yeah, perhaps I can give some conventional tips for sleep, which would be within this genre of what we call sleep hygiene, and then maybe some unconventional tips that people haven't heard so much about. The sleep hygiene, there are probably five things that you can focus on. And what I really dislike is people just giving you rules. I don't think people respond to rules. People respond to reasons and not rules. So I'll try to explain Mm. the reasons behind each one. The first, as we mentioned before, is regularity going to bed at the same time and waking up. The reason for that regularity being so important is that your brain has its own master 24-hour clock that sits deep in the middle of the brain, and it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And therefore, your brain expects regularity and thrives best under conditions of regularity, including the control and the regulation of your wake and sleep. So by giving it regularity, you anchor the brain in that regularity, you ground it in regularity, and therefore you can improve both the quantity and the quality of that sleep. The second one is something we've also mentioned too, which is temperature. And here the argument is to keep it cool. Because your brain and your body need to drop their core temperature by probably a about one degree Celsius or about two to three degrees Fahrenheit in order for you to then fall asleep initially and then stay asleep soundly across the night. And that's the reason, by the way, you will always find it easier to fall asleep in a room that's too cold than too hot, because too cold is at least taking you in the right thermal direction for better sleep. Recommendations there have varied, but somewhere between around 65 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit, um, the suggestion is on the cooler side of that, Mm. or around maybe 18.2, I'm probably not getting my mathematics right, uh, degrees Celsius is good for most people. By the way, if you're one of those people who doesn't like to get into a cold bed, it's perfectly fine for you to wear socks, or you can put a hot water bottle at the end of your bed. I will freely admit that occasionally during the winter, because I leave my windows open here, even you know, Northern California is hardly uh, the severity of, of Northern Scandinavian countries in terms of coldness, but it still gets pretty cold. I will sometimes do that. Mm. So you can do that, but cold the ambient must be. The third one is light, which we mentioned too. I think we are in this modern era, a dark deprived society, and we need darkness at night to trigger the release of a hormone that you just mentioned, which is called melatonin. And melatonin helps with the timing 
of your sleep. It doesn't necessarily help with improving the quantity or the quality of your sleep. And that's why I'm not necessarily against melatonin from the perspective of does it work or does it not? There was a recent meta-analysis that I think demonstrated that it only improves the speed with which you fall asleep by about 3.9 minutes and only improves the overall efficiency or the quality of your sleep by just 2.2%. So if there is a benefit, it could be a benefit for a cluster of people and for others not, or it could just be mostly a placebo. The greater concern for melatonin is that it's not regulated and as a consequence, you know, ranges based on what it says on the bottle versus what's actually in the capsule that you right. swallow can be 80% less to a 460% more, which is a concern. So, but darkness we can use and darkness is great. A good tip here is rather than just staying away from computer screens and phones in the evening, which I do recommend, but not necessarily for the light, polluting reasons is because, well, which I'll come on to uh, for why they, I think, are sleep aggravating, which is due to their engagement of our mind, less so the impact of the light that they emit. But another tip here is drop down half of the lights in your house or even three quarters of the lights in your house in the last hour before you go to bed. And it's surprising how contextually instructive that increased darkness is. And part of the reason is because it's triggering the release, you're removing the brakes on melatonin. Light will act like a very strong foot that stamps the brakes on the flow of melatonin. So you don't release melatonin under light conditions, including electric light as much. What about the specific quality or, or wavelength of the light? Uh, various devices, mm. including our desktop computers now uh, have a some kind of night shift mode where they're not giving you the the most offending colors is that useful or is that just insufficient early work suggested that if you look across the visible light spectrum from the cool blues at one end of the spectrum all the way up to the warm red and yellow hues at the other end of the spectrum across that spectrum light can suppress melatonin but if there was any particular offending subgroup on that spectrum, it was the blue light. And we can speak about the evolutionary reasons for that. And unfortunately, it's that cool blue light that is emitted by the LED and the other new technologies that are used in screens. So that was a concern, and that probably started some of this revolution in blue light blocking glasses, which you can debate too as to how efficacious they are. But overall, I think what we've found is that you can, there's not good evidence yet, at least, that, that those different filters, such as Night Shift, or there was one that was much earlier, which was F-Lux or F.Lux. I use them because I do find that it seems to have a subjective sense of alerting versus non-alerting impact on my brain. Mm -hmm. There have been a few very preliminary pilot studies, it's just hard to get funding for those studies, that suggest they may have a benefit, but unclear right now, I think. But absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, so we can't discount that right now. So light is, is one of those things. I would be much more concerned just about the quantity, the volume of light. 
And by the way, you can reverse engineer that trick. You can, as we mentioned before, you can use light to help you wake up in the morning. Temperature is critical too, and perhaps even more so. And by the way, that's the reason why people erroneously think that after the first couple of mouthfuls of their cup of coffee in the morning, that it's waking them up, waking them up and making them feel better. Caffeine doesn't begin to get into your system and have its effects probably until somewhere between 8 to 14 minutes after you consume it. So if you're mm -hmm. feeling a benefit before that, got nothing to do with the caffeine, it's probably more likely the more immediate benefit that drinking a hot beverage has on increasing your core body temperature. And as I mentioned before, one of the final stages in this cycle called wake and sleep is that we need to warm up to wake up. And you can increase your operating temperature, just like a needle on an engine in a car, by getting yourself a hot drink. And that can help bring your body up to a faster operating temperature and therefore make you feel more awake and alert. But that was, that was light. I think the other two typical sleep hygiene tips, the first is walk it out. And what I mean by this is don't stay in bed awake for long periods of time, for 25, 30 minutes or more. And that's simply because quickly you start to learn a bad association, which is that this thing mm. called my bed is the trigger of this thing called me being awake. And you need to break that association. So after mm. that time, don't worry, don't stress out, especially after everything I've just told you during this podcast. Just say, tonight's not my night and that's okay, but I'm going to get out of bed and in a different room, if you can, under dim light, read a book, listen to a podcast, don't check your email, try not to look at the screen. Don't eat because that trains your brain to expect that too and wake up and only return to bed when you're sleepy. And there's no time limit for mm. that. I have a, a hack, which um, I think probably millions of other people have at this point, which seems to me to be better than that advice. But again, it's, uh, I, I can't yet hold myself up as a, um, an exemplar of good sleep habits. But for me, one thing that, that listening to audio has done, so like I'll put on a podcast or, or an audio book or you know, some piece of audio, provided it, it doesn't have obviously unproductive sound characteristics. I mean, so like there's not, there's not going to be loud noises or shouts or laughter or something that's going to be punctate in a way that's going to wake me up. But something that has a modulated audio, then I can lie there and just listen without any anxiety around how long it's going to take me to fall asleep because, you know, it's something presumably I want to listen to anyway. It's not so engaging that its content itself is keeping me up. And it's precisely the condition under which I can just fall asleep. I mean, I can set a, you know, a sleep timer against the audio and it, it can fade out after 40 minutes or whatever. There's no transition to navigate that might otherwise wake you up, you know, coming back to bed, turning off the light, and then waiting for sleep again. It takes the waiting for sleep component completely out of it psychologically. I do like the suggestion. I think this comes on to one of the unconventional tips that I have, which in some ways goes against some aspects of that recommendation and rule, which is often used in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is that for many people, they don't wish to get out of bed and have that rigmarole because they fear in part that it will wake them up even more so than just lying in bed. Now, mm. in some ways, you're playing the short game there. You just have to bite the bullet in some ways and get up and 
you know, it will happen again a few nights, but over time you'll gradually relearn the association. And we use that in combination with other techniques, such as limiting the amount of bedtime that you actually have. So you force sleep to have a greater hunger at night because it doesn't have the inefficiency of having eight and a half or nine hours of time lounging around in bed. You restrict that. And it's like saying normally you go to the gym for an hour every morning. Well, today you've only got 25 minutes and that's it. And you stop lingering around the gym and you get very efficient at your workout. It's the same idea for what we call bedtime restriction or sleep restriction. But I do like what you're saying, which is firstly, one of the problems that people have in this modern era is that we are constantly on reception and very rarely do we do reflection. And I think this is part of the reason why we're getting so interested in meditation in this past perhaps decade, more so than ever in in modernity. And one of the problems, however, is that the one time when we typically do reflection if we're not meditators is when our head hits the pillow and we turn the light out at night. And that's the last time you want to be doing reflection because that leads to something called rumination, which typically leads to something that we call catastrophization. And at that point, you're dead in the water for the next two hours in terms of your sleep. And you want to try and get the mind off itself. And that's why I think certain forms of meditation, if you are struggling with sleep at night, can actually be helpful because they can move you past this focused, broken record-like ruminative quality on one thing, and you're letting those thoughts pass, and you're, that, that's one potential benefit. What I also like about what you're saying, though, is just accepting, perhaps, that this period of time that I'm awake is not one where I should be fretting about sleep, but I should actually just be enjoying that I can be resting yeah. when I'm awake. And I think it's what I would call active or even quiescent rest. Wouldn't it be lovely if during the middle of your working afternoon every day, someone were to say, look, you don't have to sit here at the desk. I'm just going to give you the next half hour or the next hour. And you can just go and lie in this bed and you can just rest and you can just, you know, just rest there. Just have a nice, good, relaxing rest. Doesn't that sound lovely? You think, gosh, yeah, I would love to do that. Why don't we think about that when we're asleep? Because typically with our sleep problems, it's almost like trying to remember the name of someone. The harder you try, the more that you push the likelihood of getting it away from you. Yeah, Sleep is very much like that. The harder that you consciously try, it doesn't work like that. That's actually why I don't like meditation for sleep. And I don't like this idea of, backing away and reapproaching it. And again, this is, I'm just reasoning from my own experience here. And here we're talking about one aspect of insomnia, which doesn't cover the whole problem. And this is the problem with sleep onset. But for me, listening to audio, and in particular audio, I actually want to listen to. So that it's like, it, it does not feel like wasted time. This is not, I'm not listening to some pablum that has been constructed so as to put me to sleep, right? I'm, I'm, I'm listening to something that you're always trying to eke out efficiency. I'm learning yeah, so much exactly, more yeah. about you here. So, uh, <laughs> but what it does is it actually puts me in this completely carefree mode, which is, okay, I, I actually am happy if it takes me an hour to fall asleep here because this is actually something I enjoy listening to. But the truth is it rarely does because 
you know, it's the right time for me to be getting sleepy and I just fall asleep without catching the moment where I've, where I've lost consciousness. It doesn't have that sort of lateral inhibition component you just referenced where you're, you're trying not to focus on something, but you're focusing on it all, all the, the while uh, and therefore inhibiting it. Uh, you're just giving your attention to something that you actually want to pay attention to, but it's not, it doesn't have anything like the vigilance component that real mindfulness does, you know, where you're really paying That's close right. attention to your experience. Yeah, but despite my best efforts uh, on this front, the problem for me, and this is, I guess, this is a good opportunity for you to differentiate different types of insomnia. The problem for me is that I wake up very frequently. I almost never have a problem getting to sleep using this method, but I may wake up 15 minutes later having just taken a great nap. You know, it'll be 12.30 at night, and I'll wake up at 12.45 feeling suddenly refreshed. And that's a very different problem for me. I mean, then, then I play the same game again, but, you know, right. as the night wears on, it's a, um, it, it's still a picture in the end of, on many nights, uh, incredibly fragmented sleep. Yeah, so classically, and, and I'll come back to the, the conventional and unconventional tips, but just to double click on insomnia, Historically, we've usually thought of insomnia as at least three non-mutually exclusive profiles. You can have what we call sleep onset insomnia, which is I can't fall asleep, I struggle to fall asleep. You can have sleep maintenance insomnia, which is what you described, which is I fall asleep, but I can't stay asleep soundly across the night, which leads to a fragmented version of a night of sleep. And or you can wake up and during the day, you feel unrestored by your sleep. It's called non-restorative sleep or mm. unrestorative sleep. And as I mentioned, these are not mutually exclusive. So you can have some combination of these things, which is something that we call mixed insomnia. So those would be the three classic phenotypes, which have some degree of potential Venn diagram overlap. More recently, there's been some great work from a friend of mine in the in the Netherlands called um, Oes van Sommeren. And he's suggested, in fact, that there are even more subtypes of insomnia. And he did a very elegant study where he grabbed a whole, a large collection of people who struggle with sleep, who had insomnia. And he was looking at these different things like difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, being awake at night, not feeling restored the next day, but also other things such as personality traits, aspects of your mood, and your emotion, your fatigue, you know, agreeableness. He looked at so many different things and using sort of some clever um, machine learning analytical tools, he was able to take the white light of this thing called insomnia and shine it through this analytical prism, almost like the Pink Floyd album, and split insomnia apart into even more subtypes than we ever thought possible into these different types of the, the visible light spectrum, as it were. So we're getting closer to starting to understand it's not quite as simple, perhaps, as these three different subversions or combination of some versions of those things. And we can speak more about why we think insomnia happens and the underlying biological mechanisms, or we can go back to the, the sort of the tips. But I did just want to mention that we do understand what you describe and it does have one label of insomnia, which is called sleep maintenance insomnia. Now, yeah. by the way, it doesn't mean that you have insomnia. That's a feature of insomnia. The criteria 
to receive a clinical diagnosis of insomnia is actually very strict. You have to be experiencing this collection of symptoms or one of these symptoms for, I think it's something like at least three nights a week consistently for, I believe it's three months. Put me down for mixed insomnia, no question. Okay. Okay. Yeah, then you, you could qualify for that. And there's been a lot of argument around the fact that that threshold for clinical diagnosis is too stringent because if you sample the general public, almost one out of every two people that you pass on the street will tell you that they have a struggle with sleep at least once a week. Mm -hmm. So it's a much bigger problem, even though we know it's a big problem because somewhere between 10 to 15% of the general population qualifies as having clinical grade insomnia. So you're not alone even in the clinical grade bucket itself. Yeah. Well, let's see if we can diagnose the possible causes here because I have to think that um, historically caffeine and alcohol have played a role for me, except I'm not, when I've, and again, I've, I've really just gotten religion re recently around the, the importance of sleep for me, and, and so I've been experimenting with various things. I noticed that cutting out things completely, I mean, I've gone through periods where I've cut out caffeine, I've cut out alcohol, doesn't work any obvious miracles. I mean, I don't know how quickly you would expect this to reset things, but, uh, and I want to talk about exactly what we know about the um, neurophysiology of caffeine and alcohol here and what you recommend or, or uh, recommend against. But, you know, if alcohol were my problem, would you expect, you know, complete uh, abstinence of, from alcohol uh, for a week or two to give me perfect clarity as to that being the cause? Or, or would you expect it to take longer than that? I think that that would be a sufficient time, and it may be slightly longer time for caffeine abstinence for that to happen. Usually, the evidence would suggest that those things are certainly not helping your sleep and your sleep problems. And so it's not to diminish the degree of regulating or controlling them. Now, by the way, I've sort of changed my tune on caffeine or coffee, I should say, more specifically. More, more I would tell as distinct people, from tea or any other source? Well, yes and no. I, the, the reason I would say firstly is actually drink coffee because the health benefits associated with drinking coffee are numerous. They're significant. And many of them are actually very overlapping with the benefits that you get from sleep, <laughs> mm. which is a paradox. I mean, people have said, how do you square that circle between those two? Now, if you dig into the details here again, the timing and the dose do make the poison when it comes to caffeine. And we can explain why on the basis of its duration of action. But to come back to its health benefits, there's a great book that was written by a dear friend here in Berkeley, um, who I've got to know very well over the years, called Michael Pollan. Yeah. And who, yeah, of course, you, you know well. Delightful chap. And he wrote a book called Caffeine, and uh, we spoke about that book. And one of the reasons that coffee is associated with the health benefits that it absolutely is. And by the way, that too is dose response related. Once you get past about four cups of coffee a day, the health benefits start to go down in the opposite direction. Mm. But they're present and very hard to argue with. It's not the caffeine. It's that the coffee bean contains a whopping dose of antioxidants. And in fact, because most people in the Western world are deficient in their whole food dietary intake, the way that they get most of their antioxidants 
is through this thing called a cup of coffee in the morning. And so the coffee bean, the humble coffee bean, has been leveraged with the weight of carrying the burden of most people's antioxidant dose during the day. Case in point, if you look at the health benefits of decaffeinated coffee, which still have Mm -hmm. many of the antioxidant effects, and decaffeinated coffee is also associated with a beautiful kaleidoscope of different health benefits as well. So it's the coffee bean itself rather than the caffeine. But to come back to your point, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you stop using those that and you don't see a sleep benefit, that they haven't been hurting your sleep. And I'll say that for at least two reasons. Firstly, because there may be other things that we have yet to address, that when we address them, in addition with abstinence from those two things, or at least regulating them, once again, I don't want to sound puritanical. I should not be telling anyone how to live their life. Mm. That's not my job. I'm just a scientist. Yeah, well, you, just well, you should you be telling data. me because I'm, I'm asking you to. <laughs> so uh, uh, be so, as pres- prescriptive as you want. I've just been, I ha- what I haven't noticed if, is that zeroing it out completely works a miracle for me with respect to sleep yet. And um, that's so, that's just a question, you know, like, I, I mean, it's, it, it, de- it definitely seems worth experimenting further for me to, to dial it down to zero and just see. But I, I was wondering if I really should see immediate results on that front. So my suspicion is that uh, and we can sort of go into it. And I should note that, you know, I'm not an MD here. I'm not a clinical sleep yeah. specialist. I'm a basic scientist. But let's go a little bit further with some more questions as to sort of what could be roadblocking your path to glorious slumber. These things with by abstaining will certainly be, even if they're not improving the quantity of sleep, they are more than likely improving the electrical quality of the sleep, which your sleep tracker and you yourself will not be aware of. And that's one of the sort of nefarious issues with both alcohol and caffeine that it's a little bit like sleep deprivation. Mm. You don't have a good sense of being sleep deprived when you're sleep deprived in terms of your performance. Well, similarly, you don't necessarily wake up thinking, okay, the electrical amplitude of my deep slow waves last night, they felt really pretty shallow. They didn't feel particularly big last night. But when we measure with electrodes at night, in the electrical static of sleep at night, we can pick out measurable differences with caffeine administration and with alcohol administration. So there can be qualitative benefits that you get that subjectively won't be as obvious as the quantitative sleep benefits that you may expect, which are much more obvious because you're not lying in bed for so long awake. Right. So what would, what would you I expect would, about, with respect to the timing of mm-hmm. uh, both caffeine and alcohol uh, and their, their respective half-lives, uh, where, would you, where would you put the zone of relative safety and relative danger with respect to latest consumption? I somehow we feel like we're going to be here. arguing for a, a two-martini lunch now, and, and, and <laughs> we'll be back in the 1950s. Yeah, exactly. We're going to get very madmen uh, on this, this episode right now. Here, I think we're going to have to speak about the unfortunate average human adult, mm-hmm. for which there is no such thing because everyone is a unique snowflake and has specificity. But what we can say based on the data is, on average, for the typical average adult, certainly Caffeine has a half-life of about five to six hours and therefore has a quarter-life of about 
10 to 12 hours. So if you have a cup of coffee at noon, a quarter of that is still in your brain at, at midnight, just to give you a sense of that. And that's right. why some people don't understand its blast radius impact from a temporal dose dependency. I think the recommendation would be certainly try to cut yourself off from caffeine, you know, eight to 10 hours before you expect to be turning the lights off and wanting to get into bed. At that point, I would say decaffeinated coffee, some of them really don't taste too bad um, if you need your cup of coffee. Yeah. Alcohol is harder. We haven't done as many time-dependent, dose-dependent responses with sleep in the way that we have done with caffeine. But certainly what we know is that any amount of evening alcohol has, on average, measurable impacts on sleep. And alcohol will disrupt your sleep in probably at least three different ways. The first is that it sedates you, and sedation isn't sleep. But you mistake one from the other when you have a drink and you think, well, alcohol actually helps me fall asleep. Alcohol helps you lose consciousness more quickly. It's not naturalistic sleep if I were to compare the two brainwave Mm. patterns. The second is that alcohol will fragment your sleep. So it increases the likelihood that you will wake up throughout the night. That is in part because alcohol will trigger the activation of chemistry within the body that activates something called the fight or flight branch of the nervous system that we spoke about before. It's called the sympathetic nervous system, which is terribly named because it's Mm -hmm. anything but sympathetic. It's very agitating, very aggravating. And alcohol can unleash a chemical cascade that increases the likelihood that you'll get spikes, particularly in the middle of the night, to fragment your sleep. Alcohol will also decrease the amount of rapid eye movement sleep. And it seems to be the metabolic byproducts coming from your liver and your kidneys as they try to excrete and break down alcohol that will invade and and prevent that REM sleep generation as effectively. We've also found that with alcohol administration in the evening, because of that REM sleep deficit, REM sleep helps regulate not just things like emotions and creativity and mental health. Down in the body, it regulates key hormones. For example, peak levels of testosterone are typically released just before REM sleep and, and highest during REM sleep. We also know that if you block or impair REM sleep using alcohol, it can drop the release of growth hormone. And you think, well, isn't that just a worry for kids? Or hopefully kids are not drinking, mm. but or teenagers, and hopefully they're not drinking. No, we all need growth hormone. It should be released in all of us, even throughout adulthood. It's essential. And some studies have reported that with alcohol in the evening, there was a 50% decrease in growth hormone at certain times of the night. Again, you're not subjectively aware of that. So you you don't think that the alcohol is changing your sleep pattern. But here again, it's a case of quality of your sleep that is impacted, which leads to a downstream consequence on your physiology. And so your physiology profile can perhaps look better if we had, you know, if we had our mutual friend of Peter Atia next to your bedside in the morning, who could do a full array of tests on your brain and your body to assess what does your biological profile look like during this abstinence period from alcohol. Maybe you don't see in your sleep tracker data that it was the be all and end all of gracious sleep, but still the quality of it is better and it's reflected in the proxy of your body and or brain functioning being better the next day. So that's the other kind of dangerous mm. sort of assumption that we we have to just be mindful of. Yeah, so with alcohol, given that it's sane consumption is basically an evening 
event. They're they're really you're really just playing uh, Russian roulette with your sleep with with any amount for that night. Here again, I think I'm torn. And I several years ago when I started this effort to try and reunite humanity with the sleep that I felt it was bereft of, I was too heavy-handed with all of this stuff. And I think my message ended up being, you know, sleep or else, dot, dot, dot. And I don't want to seem puritanical. My goodness, life is to be lived to a certain degree. And so, you know, if you're going to have, you know, a, a few nightcaps in the evening, you know, on Saturday or a Friday or whenever it is, it's fine. As long as you know the consequence, you're making a conscious, deliberative, informed choice as to the fact that you're going to onboard some alcohol in the evening. And I know that my sleep is probably quantitatively or qualitatively, it's probably not going to be as good that night. Then that's just fine. What I don't want to do is leave the public ignorant of the consequences of these things and therefore making choices that they would perhaps change in terms of a decision outcome if only they were to know the data. But once again, come on, you know, a couple of drinks every now and again, you know, some coffee throughout the day. Let's live life too. Let's not get so hung up about this yeah. thing called sleep. Yeah, no, but if 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 that's against a background of otherwise satisfying sleep, that's one case. But if you're mm. If you're like me, beginning to perceive every night as some kind of problem to be solved, and then not recognizing that a beer with dinner or two is likely the precursor to that problem, and you just you've never connected those dots, that's worth figuring out. Let me ask you a different question. Yeah. Tim. What? How long do you spend in bed? Typically, what time do you normally go to bed, or what time do you normally wake up? Or well, if you prefer not to share that information, at least you know, I'm, I'm happy to. No, I'm, it's, it's, you know, I'm happy to talk about it. But it, it's something that it, it's in flux now because I've been just in recent weeks deciding to be more proactive with respect to my sleep hygiene. So it, it, it was the case that I was. I mean, I've always been very nocturnal by tendency, and you know, I, I think uh, I mean, you spoke about the time-keeping effect of the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, I don't think we mentioned that most people's clocks here run longer than 24 hours. So it's like 24 and a half hours, 25 hours. And so people left... Under you, conditions of total you know, environmental absence, if I have to stick you in a dark cave exactly. for you know, six weeks, yeah. you, you start to run long. You start to run about... It's about 24 hours, and I think the last count was something like right. 12 minutes or 13 minutes. So Right. So and presumably that gets re, you know recalibrated by light exposure and uh, that's another piece and that I, I feeding have not... and temperature and lots of different time givers what's called Zeitgebers, right? German term time giver. Right. So I'm someone who's noticed in himself a tendency to just stay up later and later until it becomes non-functional and then I walk it back down. I've never been someone who's naturally getting up at you know six mm. in the morning and and you know happy to to greet the dawn. I, I notice that the times I do go to sleep earlier, for whatever reason, it's just a better shot at a really good night's sleep because there's less, I mean, there's, there's less light exposure. I mean, if, I, if I'm going to sleep at two or three in the morning, well, then, you know, then I'm getting, you know, w- without eye shades or, or blackout curtains, I'm getting the ambient light cues that I should be waking up, uh, you know, fairly early in my sleep cycle. Right. It's something that I'm changing for myself now and, and consciously going to sleep earlier and getting up earlier. 
Well, I think that there are two things here that I would love to sort of explore or, or push the button on. The first is the duration of time that you are mm -hmm. in bed. The second is when that duration of time or where that duration of time sits on the 24-hour clock period. Right. The second question comes back to something you just mentioned. We should have you take, and everyone can take this if you just go online and Google it, something called the MEQ test, which stands for Morningness, Eveningness Questionnaire. And in fact, I just did a three-part series on my own podcast all about what's called chronotype. Are you a morning type, evening type, or somewhere in between? How do you determine that? What should you do about it? And can you change it? Mm -hmm. And I think the first thing to do is to really get a sense of what where you sit on that chronotype spectrum. In fact, sleep researchers have even subdivided into four categories, extreme morning type, morning type, neutrals, evening types, and then extreme evening types. Extreme evening types would like to be going to bed around three, four, five in the morning and sleeping through uh, late. Extreme morning types would be liking to get to bed in 7.30, 8 o'clock uh, at night. Right not even greeting the dawn, but awake far before it. So I think the first thing to do is to determine what type you are and see if you can start to sleep in harmony with your chronotype rather than against your chronotype. And it can work in both ways. You know, if morning types are going to bed at an evening type like nature, then they may still fall asleep fine, but the problem is that they are probably not going to be able to stay asleep for the right amount of time that's needed because their body clock, their internal rhythm, is wanting to wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning and they're going to bed on a night owl schedule even though they're a morning type. They're going to bed at 11 p.m. at night and they just can't stay asleep. So they sleep fine for the first half of the night and then they sleep miserably for the second because their biology is wanting them to be awake, but they're just not getting in the right sleep at the right time. The opposite is true for evening types. Some of those will say to me, I am terrible. I have terrible insomnia. I can't fall asleep. I lie in bed, usually for about an hour trying to fall asleep. When you ask them a little bit more, for some of them, it's true. For some of them, it's the fact that their natural predilection based on chronotype is to probably go to bed around 12 p.m., around midnight, uh, sorry, 12 a.m., and then wake up at 8 a.m. But because of their work schedule or family, they are getting themselves into bed at 10 p.m. And they're saying, I'm wide awake and I don't truly understand why that's the case. It's not because you necessarily have insomnia, it's because you have a mismatch between your chronotype mm -hmm. and when you are forcing yourself to try and fall asleep, which is a time biologically when your body and brain do not wish to fall asleep. So I think that's the first thing that we want to get straight. The, the other component here that we just mentioned in, in passing here, which is the, the effect of light as a way of anchoring your clock. And, and uh, one thing you've recommended in various contexts is exposure to natural sunlight early in the day. I must admit that's something that I have uh, neglected to do for uh, vast stretches of time. Um, wh why is that important? So the first thing is that it helps tamp down melatonin that, as we said, when light starts to fill the brain, and it doesn't really fill the brain, it, light is converted to an electrical signals that tells the brain that there is light around. That can reduce melatonin and make transition from the recognition of the brain saying it's nighttime and I should be asleep to the recognition that it's daytime and it, that it's time to be awake. The second thing is that 
light can also help increase the quality of your waking focus and your waking activity. And the better the quality of those things, typically there is a knock-on benefit for sleep at night. But for the most part, it seems to be that light is a very clear key to help instruct your circadian rhythm. So your circadian rhythm is this 24-hour rhythm, and it dictates lots of different things. But one of the things it dictates is when you want to be awake and when you want to be asleep. And normally, that rhythm should start to rise as you are waking up, and it should peak in the sort of early to middle part of the day. And then it gradually comes down. Now, there's a few little wrinkles in that story. Gradually comes down towards the evening, and then it hits its lowest point. It's this awesome downstring, uh, sorry, awesome downswing of the circadian piston that hits its nadir, its lowest point, right in the middle of your sleep phase. And then it starts to rise back up again. So it produces this sinusoidal wave. And what you really want in that, that wave is a very high peak and a very deep trough. So you want a high mountain peak of wakefulness, and you want a deep, low valley of this thing called sleep. Light can help you reinforce that separation, the pushing apart, and it can up the peak, and it can help lower the trough of your circadian rhythm. And when you're doing that, typically what happens is that you're, you start to sleep better. So light will help as a regulator of your rhythm. The better and the more powerful the rhythm that you have, the better your sleep. Reverse that idea, which is to say, maybe what happens is that during the day, I'm stuck in a poorly lit office, and so I'm getting low-level electrical light, which even the brightest of electrical light doesn't match up in terms of its lux capacity relative to a dull, cloudy day, um, which is right. good news for people like me from England. And so what can happen is that you're in artificial light during the day, so you don't get that nice light signal to increase the peak of that mountain of wakefulness. And then at night, we come home and we bathe ourselves in artificial light, and that prevents us from getting that nice deep trough of the lull, the downswing. And so as a consequence, we don't have as high a peak and we don't have as deep a trough. And therefore, that sinusoidal wave is much flatter as a consequence. What does that mean? It means that you feel sleepy and tired during the day when you should be awake and you feel more awake and alert at night when you should feel sleepy. And that's why light can be helpful in terms of pushing apart those two. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. So. um there's so much to talk about here, Matt, and, and uh, this has been an absolute deluge of information. Uh, there's a, just a couple of other points I want to um, of course. cover so that we uh, don't leave anything of crucial importance untouched. And um, one here is just, you know, I don't, I don't know how common it is to be tracking sleep now. I mean, I, I've been doing it for a while and it seems all too normal, but it's, I wonder what, what do you think about the utility of these various sleep tracking devices? How valid are they with respect to the the various stages of sleep? Because I mean, in in mm. no case are we talking, you know, in, for consumer products, are we talking about actual EEG leads to the mm -hmm. scalp? Uh, we're talking about peripheral measures of physiology and and motion. 
what do we know about, uh, feel free to mention any specific devices, but, you know, I've been, as I said, I've been using the Aura Ring, and um, in the last 10 days or so, this Why Things sleep mat. And as I said, they're somewhat discrepant with respect to what they're reporting to me, although yeah. not utterly so, uh, as you might expect. But uh, what do you think there as far as their utility and validity? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. And um, actually, before I go, I feel desperately responsible now for your, oh, sure. your sleep and trying to course correct it. Yeah, yeah. So I will come, let, let me, I, I'd love to speak about that because I have a lot of thoughts um, and do a, a lot of work in that area. But the other thing that we we were going to mention was just your time in bed. Now, oh, yeah. it may be that there were times in your life where you were not in bed for a sufficient amount of time, maybe when you were a younger um, lad, and I'm not suggesting that like me, although I think we're probably very close in terms of age. I am certainly solidly in the foothills of middle age, but when I were a younger lad, I slept pretty well, and maybe you did too, maybe you didn't. But right now, one way that we could try to or a sleep clinician, I would say, because I'm not one, would recommend trying to wrestle back your sleep is doing this thing called bedtime restriction. I think you're doing many of the things. You're getting light in the morning. I think you're trying to be mindful of your alcohol and your caffeine. You're also trying to find ways where you relax at night. Now, one suggestion they would tell you is if you're awake in bed, get up and get out. We've spoken about that. Mm. You have a different I, method, I, which I very much on that like. Point, yes. Right. And I very much like that. I, I'm a big proponent of just this thing called enjoyable rest when you're mm. in bed and not stressing because both of those are ultimately about you not seeing your bed as this trigger of a place of anxiety. Because right now you're in a state, Sam, where you have lost confidence in your sleep. And as a consequence, your night of sleep controls you. And what we try to do with sleep therapy is reverse that, mm. where you feel as though you control your sleep. It doesn't control you, and you regain your confidence in the ability to sleep well. One of the, if things aren't working so well with these sort of lighter touches, uh, alcohol, caffeine, light itself, exercise, trying to, you know, not get so anxious about sleep, have realistic beliefs about sleep and not get, you know, don't listen to that idiot Matt Walker and get so anxious about sleep. Instead, to get more aggressive, we could take it a step further and say, assume right now that perhaps your chronotype would typically wish you to be going to bed. And again, I'm just going to, for argument's sake, say at midnight and then preferentially waking up at 8 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. Let's firstly get you on that schedule and see if that works. And if it doesn't, that's fine. The next thing that we're going to do is compress your time in bed. And maybe we start aggressively by taking a two hour chunk out of your sleep. I say, you're not going to be allowed to go to bed at midnight. You have to go to bed at 1 a.m. And second, you have to wake up at 7 a.m. rather than 8 a.m. in the morning. That way, we're going to top and tail your sleep. I'm going to slice off an hour of opportunity at night and slice out an opportunity in the morning. So now you have six hours. What I would guarantee for a fact is that your system even though it may have had a history of not getting enough sleep or a history of you know some alcohol and some caffeine it still has the capacity to generate sleep and what we do by restricting your time in bed is generate a stronger hunger for sleep and so we say look 
you don't have all the time that you get normally to eat your food at night. You don't get a sort of a nice relaxed hour or so to eat the food. You've only got three minutes to get as much food into you as possible. Mm. And all of a sudden you become very efficient at getting a lot of food into a short space of time, just like the gym analogy. And that's what we're trying to do. We decrease the opportunity for sleep. Except but, there's, there's so much that's counterintuitive about this, but in the case of working out, obviously, all of that's under voluntary control, and I can decide to correct. have a, you know, the best workout of my life in 20 minutes because that's all I've got. Whereas with sleep, this is precisely the opposite circumstance. You're, you're trying to invoke uh, processes that you can't consciously marshal. So shortening the window of opportunity seems like it would add nothing but anxiety. Why wouldn't the recommendation be if you can spare a truly unlimited amount of time, just go to bed, just start the project at the right time, whatever that is, let's say midnight, Mid midnight's pretty plausible for me, and have, have it be completely open-ended so that there's zero anxiety about what time, I mean, assuming you can fit this into your life, there's zero anxiety about what time you're ultimately going to get out of bed. You, can, you know you can stay in bed for as long as you need. And if you wake up at four in the morning and it takes you an hour to fall back asleep, you can fall asleep again. And you don't have to get out at 7 a.m. in this case. You could sleep until nine if you had to. It's just a way of, of just seeing what <laughs> your unregulated brain will do with an unlimited window for, for sleep opportunity. Time. So I think it's a really great question. It's a very understandable approach to it. And the problem is twofold. First comes back to this issue where you just start to learn that that's how you treat this thing called your bed and this thing called the bedroom. Hmm. It's just going to always involve long stretches of time where I'm awake. And you don't necessarily need to suffer that because the system can respond, and I'll come back to your issue of working out is a conscious choice, sleep is not, or, or the generation of sleep is not. The second issue is the fact that in the past 15 or so years, we've realized that the quality of your sleep is just as important as the quantity. You can't get away with either, both are critical. But there is something important about going through those cycles in a continuous, non-fragmented way that is beneficial for your physiology and your psychology in a way that fragmented sleep, and especially long stretches of wakefulness, then sleep, then wakefulness, then sleep, doesn't seem to satisfy your biology mm -hmm. and your physiology. So there's cause to still be motivated not to necessarily go down that path. The reason that we do bedtime restriction uh, or sleep restriction is for exactly the reason that you described. You can't just will yourself daisy chain your sleep cycles together without waking up. And you can't will yourself to just say, I want more deep sleep quality, and I, or I want more REM sleep. Unlike saying, I really am going to lift harder, or I'm going to cycle harder at the gym. You can choose to do that. You can't choose those other things with sleep. But it turns out that physiology can make those choices for you mm -hmm. as long as you put it under the correct conditions. And by restricting sleep, by increasing this hunger for sleep, we know that the system of almost everyone ends up responding and it takes time. That's the hard thing. Sleep restriction is a hard thing to comply to in terms of a treatment. But 
after, you know, and it can take, you know, one or two nights for an individual, or it can take seven or eight nights or even longer before that restricted bedtime situation finally forces the system. Hmm. You know, it's like going out for a run, at least it is for me. The first couple of minutes, my body is screaming, I don't want to run. I really don't want to run. And then at some point, because I just keep going, the body says, okay, I get it. I'm now going to start working with you rather than against you. And I will comply with your wish. It's the same way with bedtime restriction, that over time, gradually, the pressure to sleep, because you're restricting the, the opportunity to sleep so frequently, so consistently, your system at some point gives up and says, I just can't mess around. I just cannot take the time I used to luxuriously because I have all the time to sleep in the world. I don't have that opportunity. For whatever mm -hmm. reason, I don't quite understand why. I know that Sam does not have the opportunity bedtime to do anything more than six hours or even five hours a night. And I just have to get what I need done within that five hours. And you start to have more continuous sleep. It's a tough thing to go through, yeah. but it is worthwhile. And it, Lest I give you the wrong idea that I, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the Proustian malefactor you imagine me to be, but according to my aura ring, my sleep efficiency is usually around 80%. And it's been at least, I think, probably two and a half years, three years that I've had this ring. On average, I sleep about six and a half hours a night, and I'm in bed for, you know, eight-ish hours yeah. a night. So that sounds as though, so I would say typically we consider anything below 85% as something that's not ideal in terms mm. of sleep efficiency. So we're really looking to drive that, you know, above 85. Now, again, I'm not trying to get people sleep anxious. And we'll come on to sleep trackers in a second and, and how to be sleep anxious or not about them, whether you should be. So I think there's opportunity room for you. And I would say, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you could get your average six and a half hours of sleep within just six and a half hours yeah. rather than require uh, eight I, and a quarter I would hours much rather get seven and a half hours within seven and a half hours. Right, exactly. And we, you know, we, there's a chance that we could get there too by sort of optimizing even further. But it's sort of, you know, it's saying, wouldn't you prefer it that way, even though it's not the nicest thing to undergo, which is bedtime restriction, which is the alarm goes off and you think, oh, God, seven o'clock, I'd normally like to wake up at eight o'clock, or, you know, I am kind of tired, or, you know, I normally just go to bed at midnight because. That's the time my wife goes to bed and I don't want to do this, but I have to stay up until 1 a.m. Better that and get the efficiency of that sleep. So that's the irony of sleep restriction. Mm -hmm. And that's why we prefer to call it bedtime restriction is because ultimately what it leads to is not sleep restriction. You're spending the same amount of time asleep, if not more, but you're just doing it within less time ultimately. So that's why we restrict your bedtime but you end up still sleeping the same amount, if not improving and getting better. And then gradually what we do, once your system has relearned its capacity to sleep, we start backing out that. So now we'll have you go to sleep at maybe 12.30 at night rather than 1 a.m. And maybe you wake up at 7.15 a.m. rather than 7 a.m. Mm. And you gradually start to walk it back out to see where the system is going to acquiesce in terms of its physiological homeostatic set point. And if you start to get your sleep efficiency dropping below, let's say, 
then we're going to constrain it again and we're going to bring it back under control and not let it get out of control as it has done in the past. So you can play with that, mm. but it is extreme. It's a tough one. So is this, is this an argument for simply setting an alarm at the same time every day, regardless yes. of when you have actually fallen asleep? And, and that's probably one of my, yeah, for exactly that reason, it's one of my unconventional tips, Okay, which is to say, let's say that you've had a bad night of sleep or a bad couple of nights of sleep. The first unconventional tip that really came from a dear friend, Michael Perlis, is the following, do nothing. And what I mean by that is don't sleep in any later, don't go to bed any earlier, and don't nap during the day. So firstly, if you sleep in later, you're going to wake up later. And therefore, by the time your natural bedtime comes around that following evening, you won't have been awake for as long because you woke up that much later. And now you won't have the same amount of sleep pressure of drive to sleep that you would normally have, but you still get into bed at the normal time. And now you're tossing and turning and you think, oh my goodness, I'm going to have another bad night. So no matter whether it's been bad night or a good night, wake up at the same time. Don't nap because naps can be great mm. for some people. And we've shown lots of studies that naps have a benefit for brain and body. But if you are struggling with sleep at night, the advice is don't nap during the day because once again, naps will act almost like a valve on a steam, on a pressure cooker. When you have a, a nap during the day, you will release some of that healthy sleepiness that you've been building up. And therefore, when it comes time for you to try to fall asleep and especially stay asleep, you're not going to sleep with the same weight of sleepiness on your shoulders because the nap jettisoned some of that sleepiness during the day. Mm -hmm. And therefore, your sleep will be lighter or more fragile as a consequence. And then finally, don't go to bed any earlier. Even if you're tired, hold out. Because if you go to bed at your, you know, earlier than you would otherwise, you're violating your expected 24-hour rhythmic tendency. You're now going to bed at, let's say, 11 p.m., when normally you go to bed at 12 p.m. And now, once again, because your body is not designed or expecting to do that, even if it's had a bad night of sleep, you then toss and turn for the first hour because you've gone to bed too early when your biology doesn't want to. And once again, you're back into that negative spiral loop of insomnia. So that does come in and play into that idea. And that's one of the unconventional tips is after a bad night of sleep, do nothing. And that's why also regularity, going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time, even if you have to use an alarm clock for both, right. is really helpful. All right, interesting. You've given me many things to do here. I have two sleep tracking devices giving me information that yes. I don't know whether to <laughs> dignify as... Uh, as such. So uh, w what do you think about this? And is there, it's interesting to consider not having this information, because if I didn't have this information, I would be only dimly aware that my sleep is of poor quality. Mm -hmm. I would have a very vague sense of how much time I spend to sleep. I would have no notion of, of the, the staging. And in fact, I, I don't know, and I don't know if any of the information I have is valid. And my my general experience is not of being very sleepy. I mean, so I, I don't have a, in terms of the restorative quality of my sleep, you know, on some days it's it's obviously not great, but as a general matter, 
it's, I'm not really consciously suffering. I'm mostly suffering because my sleep trackers are telling me that I'm going to get Alzheimer's disease because I don't get enough deep sleep or REM sleep or anything good out of sleep. Firstly, I think the way I more generally think about sleep trackers is through two different lenses or in two different verticals. One is accuracy, the other is form factor. Form factor, you know, some people will say, what's the best sleep tracker out there? And usually my first answer is, the best sleep tracker is the one that you wear most frequently. Because there's no point in having some fancy device that can get you very close to the type of spaghetti monster that I would stick on your head at my Mm. sleep center here at UC Berkeley, uh, with all of the electrodes on your head and your face and your body and respiration, all of that good stuff. Even if you have something that mimics that, that's a consumable, you know, consumer device that you can buy and put on your head at home. If it's just so non-compliant with this thing called natural sleep, you're just going to start wearing it and then you're going to stop wearing it. And in fact, you can see the shelving off of what we call compliance or adherence Mm -hmm. to sleep trackers if they're not of a meaningful form factor. And so I think about them, you know, wearables versus unwearables. I'm very enamored with this Mm -hmm. idea of unwearables when it comes to sleep. So for these two things, accuracy and form factor, you can create a two by two matrix you want something that has high accuracy and that is also very wearable and very unobtrusive. It's, it's very high on the kind of near unwearable, you know, it's near invisible as it were. What you don't want is something that's both inaccurate and very cumbersome. There's no point in having something that's very accurate, but also very cumbersome because mm-hmm. you're just not going to stick with it for very long. So what's the whole point in buying it? But you also don't want something that you really don't think about at all. So it's very much in the unwearables. It's very nice. It doesn't, it's a very frictionless device, but is not accurate either. That's of no use. So that's the way I create my own decision matrix of what I think is good and what's not good. Coming to your point, and I'll get to what I think is good in a second. Your point is a very good one regarding, let's go back to food and let's go back to exercise. I can tell you, and just like you can tell me, did I have a good workout at the gym today or not? I'm consciously aware of that. I can also tell you, did I eat in a healthy way today or not? Was my eating good and was my exercise good? It's very difficult to get a sense of this somewhat non-conscious thing that we call sleep as to whether that was good. I have no subjective sense of the size or the frequency of those deep sleep brain waves lapping over my cortex at night. I don't know how much deep sleep I got at night. Maybe, as you said, there's some distant shell of a halo glow when you wake up in the morning that says, last night was a good night, last night was not a good night. And often we do this, come through in the morning and, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a bed partner and um, they say, you know, how did you sleep last night? You can say, I slept well or I didn't sleep well. So you have some answer to that. And there's some congruence between that and the objective measures that we have. But it's not really good once you get down to the nitty gritty of the different sleep stages. In medicine, we often say what gets measured gets managed. And that's why I like sleep trackers, particularly sleep trackers rather than exercise trackers. Mm-hmm. Because you know, if I were to say to you, how did you sleep last night? You can probably tell me it was good, bad, or indifferent. But if I have to well, say, I can to certainly you, tell you, I've got two sleep trackers for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know which let's, one let's is put right. The sleep trackers away for now in terms of the. Uh, but if I were to say to you, 
how did you sleep on Tuesday, right. the second Tuesday of February, yeah. which is many months in the past as we're recording this, you've got no sense at all, but you can go to your Aura app, you can open it up and you can find out how you slept that night. So there is some meaningfulness about it. The next point is accuracy. So full disclaimer and disclosure here. I am a scientific advisor to the company Aura. Full disclosure and disclaimer here. I was so enamored of the ring when I first got it that I became a, a rather small investor in it. So I, I also have uh, I've thrown my lot in with Aura. But that <laughs> said, I have absolutely no notion of its validity, which is so, so yeah. you've disclosed is, and I've disclosed. Which is important. Now tell us. Yeah, so, uh, so take whatever both you and I say with a grain of salt about the virtues of Aura. But I would say, just as a quick backdrop to that, I have tried just about every sleep tracker and device that is out there. I love this type of stuff. And I'd been wearing the Aura Ring for two years before I ended up deciding to join the company. And, and the company had reached out before that time and things just weren't right for, for that interaction. But then there, there was a, a right time. And I, if I have the opportunity, which I don't have much time to do, to work with great companies, I prefer to work with the best. Aura was the only thing that stuck with me. It was a very sticky device in the sense that it was easy for me to wear. Yeah. It wasn't intrusive because don't forget when we go to bed, we take things off. We don't put things on. So putting a wristwatch on, which is normally something we take off or putting a chest strap on or putting a headband device on is always more frictionful. Many of us go to bed with wearing a ring. And so that felt less invasive. That was the first reason I liked it, which is number one of the two verticals, form factor. The second is accuracy. And there has been several, there have been, sorry, several papers that have been published about the accuracy of several of the sleep trackers out there. And Aura is one of them. And it has now had some independent validation studies performed by academic institutes, as well as some collaborative between Aura and academic institutes. I would say that probably at that time, the leading sleep trackers that you could name were all kind of much of a muchness. I would say at around that time, based on the numbers, they were about 70% accurate in determining whether you were awake or you were asleep. And then somewhere between 50 to 60% accurate, depending on what stage of sleep we're talking about, in discriminating light sleep from deep sleep from REM sleep. So not ideal. I would say that over time, things are getting better. And I can really only comment for Aura because I work with them uh, as an advisor on this is one of the things that I do. It has been getting better over time, as you would hope it would do. And I would say that that's only going to continue and substantively so. And I think at that point, it could and probably will become industry leading in terms of its accuracy class. Does it mean that it will be 100% as accurate as what I do at my sleep center? No, it won't. Could we get maybe to 80% accuracy or 85% accuracy congruence with what I do as my gold standard sleep tracking? I think it's possible, but keep in mind one of the other issues here, which is that if I give the same sleep recording record, because the way that those sleep recording records are scored is by other human beings, by sleep technologists. Mm -hmm. And they are great at doing that and they're very well trained at doing that. But the 
agreement from one sleep scoring technician to another to another is only about 85% too. So if I give my night of sleep recording from the sleep center to three different scorers, they are agreeing very well up to 85% accuracy, but they disagree not with perfect accuracy. Mm -hmm. They have some You mean with respect to the staging of of sleep? Exactly. And different stages of sleep are more or less accurate. Typically, deep sleep is, is less accurately, reliably scored between technicians. Even if you give the same record to the same sleep technician, but at two different separate right. times, let's say separated yeah, by six depending months. Depending on how much sleep he or she has had. Yeah. They will also score it differently from one time to the next. All of which is to say that, do we really feel as though we should hold sleep trackers up to 100% accuracy as the gold standard? Well, if they get to 85%, then their batting average is probably not that much different than human right. scorers. But let me finally return to your point, which is to say, when are they not helpful? And where is the opportunity growth that I see for sleep trackers now? The first question is, where are they not helpful? That usually is in people, perhaps like yourself, or when I have gone into a bad string of of sleep and I'm suffering from a period of insomnia. At that point, I take the ring off because all that's going to do is reinforce what you already fear. And that creates a new sleep disorder that we have called orthosomnia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ortho meaning you've, you've heard of orthopedics, you've heard, yeah. of, heard of orthodontics, straightening bones, straightening teeth. This is about getting your sleep straight, orthosomnia, and worrying about getting your sleep straight. We don't know what proportion it is. It may be somewhere around 5% or even 10% of users of these wearables. Those wearables at certain times can make things worse rather than better. And at that point, if you think they are having a negative reinforcing effect on your sleep and making you sleep anxious, I would say unplug them, stop using them. Don't worry about it. Focus on getting your sleep straight with some kind of help from you know, a cognitive behavioral therapist or someone who, who can help you, your doctor can help you with your sleep. Get that managed. And then once you feel confident in your sleep and it's not controlling you, but you're controlling it, that's the time to put the measuring device on. But I would say there is a time when I would not recommend their use, even though I am an advocate for sleep and an advocate for this particular company itself. At that point, do not be wearing anything. It's only going to make matters worse. Same thing is true, by the way, for clock faces. It's another one of my unconventional tips. Take all information of time out of mm-hmm. your bedroom. Because right. if you're struggling with sleep, knowing that it's 1.48 in the morning, and now it's 2.56 in the morning, and now it's 3.24 in the morning, that's not going to help you. There's nothing you can do about it. It's only going to make matters worse. So take all of those clock faces and resist picking up your phone or resist looking at your watch to say, oh my goodness, what time is it now? What time is it now? Same thing with sleep trackers too. The final thing I would note is that I think sleep trackers have been great, but I think they're in stage one of at least three stages. Right now, we're getting better and we're getting close to being very good at measuring your sleep. And that's stage one of three. What we're not perhaps doing so well is firstly telling you, we tell you what your data is. We don't do such a good job of telling you what that means. And even if we were to do a good job of telling you what that means, the final third part is based on what it means, we don't tell you what to do about it. 
And I think that's the opportunity space for sleep tracking in the future. We don't just measure your sleep and tell you about your sleep. We tell you what it means based on your age, based on your sex, based on the context, based on your own history. And then we tell you based on that and all of the other information that we've got, this is what we suggest that you do about it. Mm. And then we run the experiment and we tell people, is it making a difference or not? So for you, Sam, did abstinence from coffee make a difference? No, it didn't. So don't worry about that. Did alcohol make a difference? Yes, it made a 20% difference. It's not night and day. Did bedtime restriction make a difference? Yeah, it made a 30% difference. How about daylight? How about exercise? How about your emotional life? How about meditation? How about temperature? We can run these experiments and we can gather this data. And not only can we tell you what your sleep is and what that sleep means, we can now tell you about how to change it. And then once we've told you what to change and you're starting to change it, we then are running a real life experiment at the individual level. And I can create personalized sleep medicine. Mm. I can create a Savile Row suit prescription for you, Sam Harris. And I can tell you what's working and what's not. And ultimately, I can find your sweet spot of perfection. Wouldn't that be a nice way to look at the future? Yes. Well, I will be contemplating all of that as I drink a gin and tonic at 8 a.m. in bright sunlight and, and sell my Aura <laughs> stock. Uh, no, this has been fantastic, Matthew. And uh, I'll come join you for morning drinks, yes. I promise. <laughs> I will uh, put all of these um, things into practice, and I will report back. I- I'm quite sure that our listeners have found uh, many, many actionable and uh, interesting pieces of information here. So um, again, thank you for your time. It's really been fantastic. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for continuing the conversation. Um, I adore speaking about sleep. I could keep going until my bedtime cutoff. And I want to just say again, I really hope I've not made people anxious about telling them about what happens when you're not necessarily getting enough sleep. I really want to be mindful. I, I think I've, I've neglected that, and I'm so sorry if I've caused people anxiety around that. I do want to speak about the science, but I want to, you know, the reason I love this conversation is that we spent a lot of time on what happens when things go wrong and how you can be kind to yourself, accept that a bad night of sleep is not the worst thing. But if it is consistent and it's chronic, bad sleep, then there are things that we can do about it. It's not a lost cause. Mm. 